Luca finally takes his first victory. Hearts were broken in the Moto GP race at Japan. Way to let the family down, Valentino. Welcome to Bite Life. Let's go! Uh, welcome to episode 86 <laughs> of Bike Live on Motorsport 101. As we look back on the Malaysian Grand Prix, the, uh, well, it makes me sad to say this, the penultimate round of this 2018 MotoGP Moto2 Moto3 season. God, it's gone quick. Uh, and we have just one race weekend of it to go. Uh, we'll look back on a brilliant weekend in Japan where two of the three championships uh, were decided. Of course, the other one had already been decided. So we now head to Valencia with no championships on the line. Which was a great surprise to all of us following the Moto3 Championship battle as Jorge Martin finally vanquished Marco Bezzecchi uh, after a titanic season-long battle between the two. We'll tell you how he did it uh, and became officially the Martinator at Sipan. Uh, we'll also cover the Moto2 race as that championship was wrapped up as well, although we kind of saw that one coming a mile away as Francesco Bagnaia uh, clinched the title ahead of Big Oliveira and then had the, uh, the mother of all botched celebrations afterwards. Uh, we'll also talk about that MotoGP race as uh, Valentino Rossi proved that no battle between him and Mark Marquez and Sepang ends well uh, as he crashed with four laps to go. Um, but a brilliant Grand Prix between the two. A tense MotoGP race um, that was... Uh, it was kind of one of those races that you just could not take your eyes off and unfortunately uh, it ended uh, just as that grandstand finish was coming into view. We'll also talk about some huge news that's broken uh, at the EI CMA motorcycle show in Milan this week. Uh, the face of World Superbikes for next season has very drastically changed. Um, and we'll look ahead to this weekend, which won't take long because nothing's on. Uh, with, uh, <laughs> with MotoGP taking a week's gap before its season finale and the Superbike season long since finished. As I've just mentioned, the eyes are already on next year. Uh, joining me once again this week to uh, to look back on the penultimate MotoGP weekend of the season and a brilliant weekend, all told, in Sepang. It's Andre Harrison. Dre, welcome. Bonjour, and um, yeah, while it wasn't necessarily the you know the completely balls to the wall manic you know weekend we got in Phillip Island where anything and literally everything happened, there was a lot to take away from you know from 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 this weekend in terms of eye, eyebrow raising moments, a a fairing addition that didn't exactly go according to plan, the rise of the worst new nickname in GP racing, the Martinator. Um, <laughs> And Valentino Rossi somehow still getting what I like to call the paradoxical treatment. I'll talk about that during the MotoGP segment itself. For those that have written my written work in the past, you'll know exactly where I'm coming from here. There's something to get excited about because I'm an M101 in the next two weeks. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yes, we'll uh, we'll talk about M101 as well in a second, which might be a bit tricky for Dre given that he wasn't on it, but we'll try anyway. Um, the places you can find us, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101 at motorsport underscore 101 is the Twitter handle that you, uh, if you're not following already, then why the hell not? But you should be. Um, so do follow us on there. Uh, our YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Our website is motorsport101.com, uh, where the aforementioned written content from Dre and uh, other members of the team uh, can be found. Um, and if you love our content so much that you'd like to back us financially and yourself early access to both of our weekly podcasts, uh, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101 is the place to go. $5 backing gets you early access to our weekly podcast, $10 backing earns you access to our Discord server and the chance to listen to these podcasts live as they are recorded, uh, which a number of you are doing right now. We thank you for listening in live on this Wednesday night, uh, November the 7th. Um, and 
those of you who listened 24 hours ago, as it is, uh, as we speak now, uh, and listened into the latest recording of Motorsport 101, episode 168, um, RJ and King had their work cut out to a certain extent because, much like uh, ourselves next week, there's no there was no four-wheeled racing for them to talk about on the latest episode of, of M101. But... Uh, an interesting podcast, Ray, which uh, created the uh, the question of sport reference in the title for this week's show. Yes, what happens next? Um, yeah, a lot, a lot of news to break down in there, to be fair, um, regarding this week's show. I mean, sadly, I wasn't on. I will, I will not be back on until, uh, I think, just before the... Actually, I'll be back on after the final round of the season in Abu Dhabi. Needs must with the full-time job. But in the meantime, RJ and King took over for me over um this this past weekend and it was a fun time for all involved um not only did we talk you know, a lot of news um you know regarding a lot of indycar um just like marco mandretti becoming a part owner um the first ever indycar test at Cota, um india indycar now forming their own media company which is actually quite interesting um as well um as well as um you know formula one stuff rob smedley leaving williams sergio said Becoming the latest lamb to the slaughter at McLaren, um, and again, like the tentative announcement again, it certainly really broke through this morning as we're recording this. But F1 going to Vietnam, um, mm. yeah, as you do, um, yes, a circuit of a 1.5 kilometer straight has my interest. Mm. Um, yeah, a lot of so, people were annoyed by that one. Sorry, carry on. Uh, I apologize for my yeah. co host. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, massive, massive, massive news as well. Again, I mentioned as well, like Formula E as well. Yes, KSI, that YouTube KSI, becoming basically the face of Formula E's broadcasting in the UK. Yeah, it's going to take some explaining, um, all of that. And your questions answered in the mailbag as well, including Aston Martin going to DTM, who your ideal IndyCar team would be, talking about streaming, and our friend of the show, Hayley, asking who we should nut over in 2019. Again, it's probably going to need some context. All of that in episode 168 of Motorsport 101. It's such a big deal. They've got fireworks going off in the background to celebrate. Happy Diwali, everybody. But in the meantime, episode 168 will be up by the time this goes out. Yeah, before we move on, actually, um, I just want to mention this because I know Dre, you haven't had a chance to talk about this all day because you went on M101, and I, I don't, think, mm. I, 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 I don't know if she listens to Bike Live, but if she does, um, we want to send our best wishes to Hazel Southwell, friend of the show, yes, absolutely, uh, regular panelist on Motorsport 101. If you haven't followed her on Twitter or seen what she's tweeted uh, over the last couple of days, um, she tweeted on uh, Sunday uh, to uh, reveal that. Um, it looks as if her uh, cervical cancer that she's um, suffered with in the past is back. Um, mm. And uh, just a horrendous piece of news uh, to read on Twitter um, last Sunday, Dre. I mean, mm. she's obviously a much-loved um, panellist on Most About 101. She's part of the very Discord server that we are recording this podcast on at the moment. Um, and uh, we were all stunned to hear that news. And, and she's, she's an absolute authority on Formula E on just on motorsport in general, particularly... Yeah. Uh, women's motorsport and um we just send her our best wishes 
Yeah, I completely echo the sentiment. Yeah, sadly, I've, I've not been on as much as I would like it. I've not had a chance to mention it on um, live on the air myself. But uh, Hazel is a, is, a, is a good friend, and I've said it before. I think she's the very best formulary journalist on the face of the planet as of right here and now. We're very, very lucky um, to have her as a friend of the show, as a you know, as a semi-regular host, and um, just a fantastic contributor in general. She does incredible work regarding formulary motorsport, women's involvement. Um, in general she does such brilliant work and we've, we've said we are very very lucky that she's donated so much time when you know she could have charged us out of the moon because she's such, she's such a brilliant freelancer but she's generously given time and appearances and effort and written work for us in the past she's with very, so very... many people in airports for our entertainment <laughs> for our delight and, and ticked off many a listener with that but we, we love it that is exactly the sort of like carnage filled but brilliant you know opinions and takes that what that make hazel who she is and we're very very lucky to have her on part of the network so on behalf of me lewis and everybody here at motorsport 101 the very very best to hazel you're a fucking flyer and i know you will find a way to get through this no doubt about it yeah if you're listening to this hazel if you do find a way to listen to this we're all right behind you uh right let's uh let's get on with uh motorcycle racing then and the action from last weekend in malaysia and it's moto 3 up first uh as we kind of do the classes in reverse based on the newsworthy events of last weekend because championships were won uh so with all due respect to the marquez rossi show and gp we're going to come to that last um and start with <laughs> moto 3 and the championship dre being decided that we probably didn't expect to be decided jorge martin went into it 12 points up um, on Marco Bezzecchi. So it didn't. It wasn't exactly um, a far-fetched scenario that we were needing for the championship to decide it because it only needed was Martin to win the race with Bezzecchi fifth. And that's exactly the result we got uh, in the end. Mm. Um, and let's start with Jorge Martin and, and the championship that he's won and the race that he put together to wrap up the championship. In many ways, it was a fitting way for Jorge Martin to win the championship. It was a race where he just demonstrated to all of us that um, whether you think he's the the most consistent rider in Montserrat or whether you think he's um, the rider who cups best under pressure or does well in the group fight, one question we cannot uh, deny is he's the fastest rider in Moto3. He's, he might be the fastest Moto3 rider we've ever seen. He just set um, a pace that no one could live with. Yeah, like if if Martin was going to win the title today or you know, on the day of the race itself on Sunday, that was always going to be how he was going to do it. And like he just has this level of breakaway pace that I have never ever seen out of someone from Moto Three so consistently. We I mean we've seen guys like Marquez and Danny Kent in the past who's done it on occasion, but to do it with the level of consistency that Martin does it with on a track that has got a lot of flowing, you know, middle distance to long distance straights on it. He was seven tenths of a second a lap faster than some of these guys during the last five laps of the race. He was very it's cautious. Not like the, it's not like the Danny Kent ones where he, he pretty much breaks them right away and just leaves them for dead. He's doing this with sort of four or five laps to go in the race where you think the race is already, the pattern's already set. We've got a group. He just yeah. seems to find this extra gear. It's it's a very it's a very different sort of beast. It's like we've seen it with some of the Moto Three greats of yesterday. Danny Kent had occasions where he was just a complete force of nature. He just broke off from the start and was in a completely different league. You know, Miguel Oliveira was 
a fantastic racecraft level rider. Brad Binder was the complete package. You know, Alex Marquez won so many of those dogfights with, with Jack Miller and other guys in the field. Jorge Martin had a seventh gear that no one has ever had in Moto3 like that, where he could just flip a switch and he is gone. Like he gets like he, it was a very weird sort of race because he, he dropped to tenth in the early going and he struggled where that was concerned. Oh yeah, the race um, started on uh, with some damp patches around and exactly there was a point yeah. in the race, wasn't there, where Bezeki seemed to have that confidence and got to the front and Martin I think was down in around eighth or ninth spot at one point and then there was mm. that there was that one moment around mid, mid distance where I think in the space of two corners he went from sixth to first. Yeah, got past two people in got, got past five guys in. T- Corners, took the front and then that was it the, the switch had been flipped and then that was it it was over You're like next thing you know he's got 0.8 of a second going over the line and the race is done like yeah if you get if you get if you let Jorge Martin get out and clear it it's over it's as simple as that the race is finished and that's exactly what happened yet again just that ultimate pace um of, of Martin and that seventh gear that he had what is as what's won him this championship because he didn't win so many of these great big pack races that we think that's, that's become synonymous with years. It, it's it's that he just has a, a breakaway button. He pushes it and he's gone. It, it, it was utterly ridiculous. And if Martin was going to win the title on the day, that was always going to be the way he was going to do it. And he did it again in impervious fashion. And you know, his seventh win of the season. He started 11 races from pole this year. He is the fastest Moto3 rider I've ever seen. And uh, a very, very worthy champion. Yeah, very worthy champion. And yeah, it, it was very similar in a way to his win back at the Saxony earlier this season where he just he just found that extra gear and just gapped the field and basically said left Bezeki in a position where you you're basically have to fight for second now, son. That, that, that's all you've got to race for now. You've got to make sure you finish... Uh, and it, in many ways, that adds more pressure onto Bezeki. When when you know that Bermartin is gone, and you know there's no pulling him back, and you know mm. he's taking 25 points, you put the, it adds the pressure on you to make sure you take 20. Um, and and Bezeki, to his credit, did that at the Saxon this season, and he's done it on a number of occasions this season, uh, because he famously did it at Aragon when, when Martin gapped them very early on. And Bezeki was able to make sure that he won the battle of the next group um, to mm. finish second. Um, but... Sticking with the race that we got last weekend before we talk about the season as a whole and the battle between the two, Bezeki was put under enormous pressure with Martin's breakaway with sort of six, yeah. seven laps to go. And I always sort of, whenever I'm talking about championships, I always mention the fact that, oh, if this was the last race, we would basically be talking about so-and-so being in with the championship. And I mention that because of the pressure that creates um, mm. and, and how differently that, that, that sort of changes the atmosphere. And, that was the case last weekend with Bezeki, where because he was in a position where the championship could be decided on that day, it just changed the pressure on him. It meant that it, it seemed as if it made it all the more difficult for him to finish second. And that final lap, Dre, was, I think, symptomatic of that, where Bezeki was seemingly doing everything right. He was, he was doing, every, he's doing his utmost to try and consolidate second, make sure that he limited the damage. It wasn't ideal. He'd still go to Valencia 17 points behind Martin, but at least he had a chance. Mm. Right. But on that final lap, he just had a number did on him, didn't he? They all came past him in the first two or three corners of the lap. And you could just see with every corner of that final lap unfolding, the championship just slipping through his fingers. Yeah, sorry. Look, I, I just got an email in. It was an executive, Miguel Oliveira. I think he wanted revenge for 
Chris Red Bull KTM from a couple of years ago, and he thought, sod it. Um, sorry, Bez. Um, executive order was carried out. Bad luck. Um, and yeah, that's basically how it all ended. Um, the, the worst possible time. Basti, you know, Bezeki was in you know, was in was in solid control of that second place, even as late as the start of the final lap, and. It's just everybody just gang rushed him going into going into turn one on the final lap, and well, that was it really. Getting punched in the nose two or three times over, and it dropped him from second to third to fourth, and that was the key point moment because dropping obviously below, obviously more than twenty five points behind that that would have ended the top, the title right there, and then he dropped to fifth in the end behind Albert Arenas, and that was it. Bezeki's world title chances just goes up in smoke. It's in. Again, I don't want to take the time out to mention this is a guy in his second year, yeah. and nobody gave Bezeki a prayer of the championship. We looked at him during the testing, and we were like, oh, that's a surprise. Seeing his name so high up the list in testing, and we were like, okay, interesting. We, I, think, we, we I think we'd have all been impressed if he just got the old podium this year. Yeah, we, we, and we didn't really read anything into it either. And, like... He turned himself from a podium guy to a guy that was winning races and constantly being in the front ends of fields and just being like the ultimate championship game manager where he would win the races he could win in front of him but maximise his results whenever he couldn't, and which obviously was a lot of the time given we all know that Martin's pace is something that no one else in the field had. Bezeki was always right there and he was always there to punish any errors that Martin had made in his championship right until the very end, really. And again, I think we can dial back to Thailand where he was, you know, taken out by by, by Bastianini on the final corner and again in Phillip Island, collected by Rodrigo, and it wasn't his fault. And he's, he's had some awful, awful luck. But unfortunately, it's just a couple of, you know, last lap errors like we had at Masano um, and Assen that, that ultimately maybe that inexperience was what ultimately did him in in this championship fight. But... He is a phenomenal talent, and again, for a second-year guy, still only 19 years old, you know, to to be runner-up in the championship to what what we could be seen as an alien-level talent in Jorge Martin, because my God, he's a he is very, very, very fast indeed, unlike anything we've ever seen in the lightweight class. Um, that is no shame at all, given Martin's a lot more experienced in Moto3. And we never really thought that Martin could be this quick one day. We, we, it's taken Martin a while to get to this point. We're coming up, coming up through the Red Bull Rookies Cup and, and you know, yeah, teaming. Forget, Martin did not win a race until the final Grand Prix of last year. Exactly. And you get, like the last year, Martin's exploded. But let's not forget, Bezeki has, has probably been the biggest surprise in all three classes all you know all year. I don't think anybody would have ever guessed that Bears would be this good um, in just his second year in Moto3. And he's moving up very quickly. I think that's, I think that's a very smart move um, because I think he'll be very fast no matter what class he's in. And, I, and I, I really look forward to seeing how he gets along in Moto2. It's a very good time for it given the enormous reset state of the field coming up um, for next year on the Triumphs. But uh, yeah, a phenomenal season for Bezeki. Just, just very unfortunate to fall at the penultimate hurdle. Yeah, I wanted to take a moment to to, to praise mm. Bezeki because we're going to talk quite a bit about Jorge Martin and Marco Bezeki. He's, he's made a fan out of me this year. I've become a, a real fan of his. He's a great um, guy. With, with his performances. He's a great guy. He Just purely looking at him and the way he carries himself, how much does he remind you of Valentino Rossi? Um, in just so the much. way he carries himself in interviews and just the just the the way he just 
yeah, the way he goes about his his, his motor racing is so impressive. Um, but but some of the rides we've seen from him this year, I mean, his first win back in Argentina, which was in very sketchy conditions, where um, mm. he was just by far away the best rider on this on that day in those conditions. And again, we kind of thought that as a bit of a novelty result at the time. Um, but as it turns out, that was kind of setting the setting the standard for the rest of the year. He has had as many podiums this year, as many visits to the podium as Jorge Martin has. Nine apiece. Um, it's just that Martin's breakdown of podiums has been seven wins, a second and a third. And obviously, Bezeki has only had three wins uh, to right. his name with uh, with five seconds and one third. And it's the weight of victories has really swung it Martin's way um, over Bezeki, who's you know dealt more in seconds and thirds than first and seconds. Um, but but some of his rides this season that have really impressed me. The ride I mentioned a moment ago at Aragon, uh, where he had to come all the way back from 18th on the grid to finish second and did it. Um, the ride in Mategi where mm. the pressure was put on him, a different kind of pressure because Martin was out of the race and he knew he had to try and punish him to the full and take the 25 points to give himself that championship shot again, to give himself back to within a point of the championship lead and he did it. Just you know, judging it tactically so well on that final lap by slipstreaming Darren Bindet within metres of the finish line to win the Grand Prix um, right. was tremendous. He's ridden with the kind of maturity that you would not expect of a second-year Moto3 rider. You really wouldn't. Um, he has been so impressive this season. Three wins, as I mentioned. Argentina, we've already mentioned Bateki, but also that win in Austria earlier this season uh, on a weekend where, where Jorge Martin was riding injured. Um, such a good season. And I think going forward for Bezeki, you couldn't really think of many better operations to be a part of as a young improving, growing rider than to be riding for Hervé Poncheral in the Tech 3 family. Um, because we've... It, it's Absolutely. A, it, how many times have we seen a young rider turned into an absolute superstar by the you know the, the guidance and the mentorship of Hervé Poncheral, Joan Zarco, Jonas Folger, Bradley Smith. I mean, Hafez Sayarin has exceeded all expectations this season as a MotoGP debutant. We'll talk Absolutely. about it later on. Um, you know, there are so many that you can go back to. Bradley Smith, of course, became a top six rider in the world in MotoGP under Javi Poncheral's uh, mentorship. And I think Bezeki, I think Bezeki's got a MotoGP future, and it probably will be with that Tech Three team in a couple of years' time if he continues on this career trajectory. Um, because he's he's done a tremendous job this season, and and, and I I wanted to give him his moment because what a season he's had, and he's gonna. It's not confirmed yet that he's going to finish the season's championship runner-up. He's certainly going to finish in the top three. He's got to uh, defend a nine-point lead over Fabio Di Gian Antonio next weekend in Valencia. But I think he deserves, at the very least, to finish second with the season he has had. Um, the championship as a whole, then, Dre, let's, let's kind of go through uh, how it's gone. And, of course, Martin started the season with uh, a victory, a narrow victory over Aaron Kanna in that head-to-head in Qatar, whereas Bezeki although we didn't know it at the time, lost a lot of points by getting knocked off on the final lap by his own teammate uh, when he might well have finished <laughs> third that day, um, fell down to 14th. Pasecki coming back to win in Argentina. Um, but I suppose some of the key moments in this World of Three season have been the moments where one or both of them hasn't scored at all. Um, and Spain and Le Mans were, were back-to-back races where Jorge Martin took pole position and didn't score a point in either. Um, right. And it seemed as if neither championship challenger of the two could stay out of trouble. Trouble just seemed to follow them to the point that in Le Mans on the final corner, they hit each other. It, it is kind of crazy how it turned out this year where, like, I, I can't remember the lot. I mean, 
Jorge Martinez champion. He has 240 points. It's actually, it's like it's like 80 less than Mark Marquez has in the same equivalent championship. Because both main title rivals have beaten each other up so bad over the course of the season because there's been DNFs everywhere. Like it's it's been ridiculous. Like, I mean, there's been unforced errors and unforeseen circumstances have been the story of this year's championship. Going back as early as, you know, the second round where Martin went from a a, a wet to dry strategy and got it wrong. Pitted on the um, formation lap for a change of tyres. Yeah, exactly. Pitted on the formation lap. You know, we had you know, Le Mans and we had Ref where he was collected in outside incidents that weren't his fault. Can it, um, for example, cannonballed half the field at Ref. I remember that one and can it was, was plastered after that one. Um, uh, Le Mans as well, where both Martin and Bezeki both failed to finish at the final corner again this Bezeki loses the front and martin gets collected um you know bastinini didn't finish that race either and it was albert arenas that had the shock that is his shock first victory you know catalonia again a dnf for martin the race he was leading in in, 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 a, in a yeah in a baggy him and suzuki suzuki were like you know, like half like three four seconds out of everybody else and then martin slides out at turn nine when he was leading that race he didn't start in Bruno due to injury. Again, he had the weird massage table injury going into Thailand. You know, Bezeki was winning when the KTM was completely OP in Austria. Then Bezeki had two last lap crashes that were his fault at Assen and at Misano. And then, you know, didn't finish in Thailand because he was taken out there. Philip Harden, he was taken out by Gabby Rodrigo. It's been a year of unforeseen circumstances and unforced errors. And that's kind of been the story of 2018's Moto3 season where it's not necessarily come down to the fastest man on the day. And like whoever's made the least amount of mistakes and dodged the most amount of trouble has won this championship. Because yes, Martin is, you know, I mean, I don't want to get into a battle about deserves because i think that's yeah. always a, a, dod a dodgy word that i think people often use to cover for the fact that someone's lost um but at the same time like martin winning seven races to bezeki's three does not tell the full story here and you know I, I think it's certainly a lot closer than the 26 point gap between them has shown over the course of the year i think it's a it's a bit it's a little bit more complicated than that um and it's been it's been a very different Moto Three season where again like it's it's some of the competitive edges actually been taken away and it's been a, a lot more down to survival more than anything else. I was looking for the there. I think survival is the one that sums it up best. And I think Martin, given his breakaway pace, given his his ultimate speed, was probably a little bit better at dodging all of that by the time it was all said and done. Mm, yeah, it's it's been a season of big point swings. Uh, between the two championship rivals where if you think back to the very first race of the season, Martin wins, Bezeki knocked off, finishes fourteenth. Uh mm -hmm. you know, Tareth, Martin goes goes down, Bezeki takes second, twenty points back off him. It's, it was the same in Catalonia, Martin has a crash, Bezeki takes second. Assen, Martin wins, Bezeki fails to score. Uh Mizano, Martin second, Bezeki fails to score. Um, it's, it's been a season where one of the championship contenders has always seemed to have a problem and the other one has just punished them on every mm -hmm. occasion. Um, and from Jorge Martin's point of view, as we've, as we've mentioned already, just an incredible sort of turn of pace, an incredible single lap pace, but an incredible ability just to break away from a, from a group 
that we probably haven't ever seen from anyone at this on this sort of level in Moto3 before. Um, but we've also seen a different side of Martin on occasions, haven't we, this season, Dre? You've already mentioned mm. the injuries that he's had this season. But on those two key weekends that you mentioned where he's actually had injuries, they've almost been weekends that have actually strengthened his championship overall. Then actually they've they've cost him points. Because if you think of Austria, yes, he lost points to Martin, but to Pazeki, should I say, but Martin finished third on that weekend, despite a week yeah. old broken wrist um from the week before in, in Bruno. And then in Thailand with that with that bizarre injury from the massage he somehow manages to ride through the pain barrier with Bezeki's problems. Martin finished fourth and pulled 13 points off him. So Martin has proven this season that, yes, he's got this incredible single at pace, this incredible talent, but he could tough it out as well. He's a warrior, Martin. He really is. And uh, you can make the case that his greatest performances this season was when he was not that he was absolutely sensational in Austria. Qualified second on the grid to Bezeki, who started on pole position. And I think the entire Moto3 paddock gave him on the back because I think they all knew just how difficult that was for Martin to do. And he still almost made a complete mockery of the entire field by qualifying on the front row with, with, with a breast. And then would finish that Grand Prix in third. As mentioned in Thailand, he basically... You know, damaged his hand in a massage table incident, which sounds like a really bad porn sketch. Um, but it, uh, it turns out he ended up would go on to finish in fourth. And as mentioned, due to Bezeki's accident in front of him, you know, you can only beat any put in front of you, and he gained 13 points off of that. And that was critical in, in bringing the championship home. And it, it, again, like Philip Island took advantage of, of Bezeki being taken out, finished a strong fifth in a race that really he could have finished anywhere from first to 11th and it wouldn't have been surprising given how close that final race was. He, he was very good at scoring critical points when he needed it most. And yeah, he is a warrior. And the fact that he came through those two very, very tough weekends where a shock injury in Thailand and of course um, him desperate to ride in Austria um yeah, after the break, and and you know, obviously missing Bruno for knowing how, you know, knowing how two missed races probably weren't, well, probably wasn't going to lead to him winning the championship. He did it anyway, and he he had phenomenal results on that weekend. So, yeah, as much as the easy thing to do is say, yeah, Martin's pace is phenomenal. He's a, he's a gritty and as determined a rider as, as we'll see. He is, and looking at this season as a whole. I have to say, this is I've possibly enjoyed this Moto3 season more than almost any other Moto3 season I've, I've watched since this class began in 2012. I mean, I probably would just put the 2013 season ahead of it. I, I still think that that three-way fight between the Spaniards of, of Vinales, oh, Solomon, and Rins, uh, that obviously went right the way down to the final corner, that for me would still be the greatest Moto3 season we've seen, um, where Vinales and Rins went right the way down to the wire. Um, but I think this runs it close, and I think Jorge Martin as well. When you when you rank him up against all the other Moto3 champions we've seen, you know, Cortese, Vinales, um, Alex Marquez, of course, won a championship, Danny Kent, Brad Binder. Um, you know, he, he would, I think, measure against any of those um, Absolutely. As, as a Moto3 world champion. Um, and I suppose as well, Dre, we have to kind of say that Yes, this season has seen a lot of crashes, a lot of mistakes between the championship contenders, but I guess when we think about it and we kind of take ourselves out of the sort of the you know, the, the sort of highly charged atmosphere of a Grand Prix, 
we need to remember that these are teenagers in the Moto3 class yeah. that are predominantly racing in this class. And I don't think, I think we have a right to expect these kids to make mistakes because they are teenagers. We, we shouldn't necessarily expect the, the Marquez, the Jonathan Ray level of just regular winning or getting points with that level of regularity because mm-hmm. they're so young and they're so inexperienced and they're going to make mistakes. And I think Jorge Martin, he ranks alongside any Moto3 champion that we've seen in terms of his ability, his talent, and I think the championship that he's put together. And I think there's every reason to expect that he's got a tremendous future in him and a future that's going to take him through Moto2 and into the very premier class of Moto Grand Prix. I, I, I completely agree with that. He's, he, he's got a level of maturity that you don't often see um, with, these, with these GP riders. And to emphasize your point about age, the ages of the top six runners in this championship, from the top, Jorge Martin, 20, Bezecchi, 19, he's 20 next week, Di Antonio, 20, Bastianini, 20, Dallaporta, 20. So he's like, Dallaporta's 21, I should say. Canet is 19. Like they are, they are still kids. They are still kids. They're like they're barely over the legal limit to drink alcohol in this country. That's that's something that we often forget. Like these are not meant to be the finished packages just yet. And like, despite that, I think you're completely right. I think Martin could hold up in any era of the last five years of. And we've been very spoilt for freak Moto free talents in the last eight Helped nine to years. Yeah, we've, we, you didn't even mention Joanne yeah. Mir, who won 10 Grand Prix last year. Martin, despite all the bonkersness of this year, has won seven times. Um, Brad Binder had one of, I think, one of the most single impressive single seasons I've ever seen in Moto3. And one of the few times where you look at his field and you go, that guy is better than everybody else. Yeah, and it's not even. Back of the field. Yeah, and he, he, he basically did it again in Valencia at the end of the year. He dominated Philip Island in a shortened race as well. I, we forget just how freaking insane Brad Binder was that season. Alex Marquez and Jack Miller were fantastic talents. So Luis Salom, God rest his soul, alongside Maverick Vinales and, and Alex Rins. And we, we, we're seeing just how a, a brilliant a talent Alex Rins is now coming together. He's fifth in the MotoGP Championship right now and spearheading Suzuki's factory efforts next year. Mir, as we mentioned, is going to be his teammate next year. Um, and Martin, I think, is every bit as good as those guys we've seen because... He has a legitimate ace in the hole. He has a ridiculous ultimate pace that I don't think we've ever seen at the top flight in, in, in the lightweight class of, of motorcycle. And I've never quite seen anything quite like it. Again, Danny Kent is the only guy that I think that's come close to that. And I think Kent was a bit more freakish and now he was able to break away at the front like that. But Martin tactically used his in just brilliant fashion where you think he's, he's playing possum where you think that you know, it's going to be a pack race like Moto3 often boils down to, but look at the fingers and he's gone. Mm. And and he, he catches the field cold and then that's how he was able to win these races. He has a legitimate X factor that not a lot of guys at, you know, 20 years old have ever, I've ever seen exhibit. Um, it, it, it's, it's a very, very rare talent. Yeah, you know, I have to stand up and applaud him. He, he is a, he's he's been he's been a grafter. This is this is not his first pony show in Moto Three. I mean, this is his fourth season with them, but he's gotten better and better every year. He was fourth in the championship last year, and that again, as you mentioned, that final round was his first Grand Prix victory, and he's turned it into seven this year in a championship around early. Um, he's phenomenal, and I and again, he's going to be 
you know, in, in, in Moto2 next year with a fantastic KTM outfit around him and uh oh, um, look out his teammate as well which is a terrifying oh, yeah. so two of the great Moto three champions that we've discussed uh in one mm. team next year um and yeah i think that that incredible qualifying pace that he has if he can, can if he can maintain that and keep that the further he goes up the cow up the up the, the uh the hierarchy of Moto grand prix into the premier class that's going to serve him mm. even better the further up he gets because of course in moto three you can you can win races from mid pack because you, you know we have such big groups and because you can just slipstream your way up the field, but you know if you could as Miguel Oliveira has proven this year when we talk about Moto Two in a moment, you cannot win championships the further up you get if you can't qualify. You know absolutely you it, you just cannot do it anymore. You need to be uh, uh, you need to have an ability to qualify second row minimum um, in Moto GP Moto Two to have a genuine chance of winning races. I know the Moto GP race last weekend was one from the third row, but by and large, the rule is you've got to be on the front two rows to win in, certainly in Moto 2, where um, where the pack is so close in qualifying, where we see top 20s mm-hmm. covered by a second. Um, yeah. You know, if Jorge Martin can still have that incredible qualifying pace in Moto 2, he is not going to have that Oliveira problem, is he? He's going to always be starting somewhere near the front of the field. Um, yeah, and, and that yeah. set, that makes your weekend in Moto Two. That that basically transforms you from you may score points or you may make the top ten to you may well finish top six. You may well make the podium um, because you, know, yeah. you you don't get big groups in Moto Two by and large. You tend to have you know the front runners and then everybody else. Um, so congratulations to Jorge Martin. Of course, Moto Two is in the future for him, but a tremendous Moto Three season for him. A tremendous Moto Three world champion even if the nickname he gave himself had uh, a lot to be desired uh, but congratulations <laughs> to Jorge Martin and commiserations to oh, Marco hail the <laughs> yes commiserations to Marco Bezzecchi and indeed to Fabio Di Gian Antonio who was still in chance mm. contention going last weekend as well and ultimately fell at the penultimate hurdle um one of the riders, or two of the riders, to mention from last weekend, Ray, um, because there were two of the riders alongside Jorge Martin on the podium. Lorenzo Della Porta and Enea Bastianini, a 2-3 for the Leopard team, who have become almost a form team um, in the second half of the season. Bastianini has had two podiums in the last five. Um, mm-hmm. Della Porta has had uh, four podiums in the last six, including the win at Misano. And Della Porta, I mean... I thought I was being quite bold last weekend by saying, yeah, he's going to win the championship next season. But with every race that passes by, I don't think it was actually as bold as I thought. Yeah, like, I was going to say, can we not feed Lewis's ego on this show? But it's like, he's, I he's getting... I was playing it quite safe now. Yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, it turns out you might have picked the odds on favourite for next season, the way yeah. this the way this season's going. There ends up that on the grid to second. Yeah. Phenomenal again from Dada Porter. Yet again, he, like, he's, he's maybe not winning these, but he is going to win a lot more next year with Martin out of the way, Bezeki out of the way. Dada Porter. All, all four men just... ahead of him in the championship are going up to Moto 2 next year. Yeah, he is literally right now the best of the rest um, by 15 points. Um, no, 15 points, yeah, 23 points ahead of Aaron Cannett, who's just had a wretched run of form to close out the year. But. Um, yeah, Dalla Porta is going to be favourite for Moto Three next year. I would say the way the way this season is going, he is he's put together a phenomenal run of form after the break, and it, it's it's not stopping. It's just like he he seems to have found something after Austria, where he was right in the mix in there. Ever since then, he's just been, he's just been phenomenal, and 
you know, he's got a good teammate alongside him and Masti need to push him. I know he's going up next year, but, you know, that's a good yardstick to have as a teammate. But Dana Porter, just these results are no longer becoming a fluke. He is consistently now one of the best lightweight class riders in the world. And with with the all with all four guys in Moto three above him moving up into Moto two next year, it's hard not to make him favourite alongside probably Aaron Cannett and, and and maybe Gabby Rodrigo because like he is super fast. Um and his racecraft is excellent and he just keeps putting off these great results. It's certainly raising some eyebrows and as you said, Lewis, like, like I thought that was quite a bold gamble two weeks ago. Now I'm thinking this is actually really safe. Who'd yeah. have thought it? Yeah, and uh, on breakfast to Bastianini, pushing me, he's having a hard time keeping up at the moment. Right. Uh, with Renzo Dollar Porter. Dollar Porter has suddenly become uh, the lead rider within that team, and he's, he's close to within 15 points of Bastianini in the championship. Um, and given how far behind he was around the summer break time, um, yeah, this kid's really arrived. And it's probably, it's probably Austria where it really clicked for him, where he, he set the fastest lap, and he and Bastianini made that incredible late charge to turn themselves up to that leading group late in the race. Um, since then, Aragon, apart where he was 13th, Dal Porter has been up the front consistently. He won in Mizado, second in Thailand, second in Japan, crashed in Australia, but he'd set the fastest lap before doing so. Um, uh, and then second again last weekend. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you mentioned Canet as well. He was another front runner for next season. Shouldn't forget, he did crash out of the lead uh, last weekend uh, yes. in Malaysia. Um, and unless something drastic happens in Valencia, he's going to go the season winless, which is uh, not something we expected to be saying at the start of the season. Certainly me, because I had the championship uh, pegged for him uh, at the start right. of the year. Um, what on uh, disappointing season he's had. He has been confirmed, by the way, for next season. He's going to be riding for Max Biaggi. No, really. He's going to be riding for Max yes, Biaggi. Yes, really. Uh, next season, the Max Racing Team, imaginatively titled, um, who are going to be taking over the uh, the Sudbetal Schedel team that currently runs for the Pertle. Of course, they won't be running him next year because he's joining the uh, Tech 3 2 squad. Um, but Peter Ertl and his squad are essentially uh, joining forces with Max Biaggi, who's been running a team in the Junior World Championship this season. He's been running Mark Garcia, the 28-17 Supersport 300 World Champion uh, in mm. that class. And they're now going to be in the Grand Prix paddock for the first time, and Aaron Cannett will be their rider uh, next year. Uh, but sticking with last weekend's Moto3 race, Martin, the winner uh, and the champion from Lorenzo Della Porta in second, Bastianini third, Albert Arenas, who's possibly another rider who we shouldn't discount for next season because he seems mm-hmm. to be finding a level of consistency now where you know the, the, the Le Mans winner this season might have been a fluke, but he's now starting to show that kind of performance regularly now with a win in Australia and a fourth last weekend. Um, so keep an eye on him next year on that, Ankel Nieto KTM. Uh, Bezeki, you know, fell on his sword in fifth. Uh, De Gian Antonio sixth. Darren Binder, who spent another race trying not to crash into people, finished seventh, uh, ahead of Tony Arbolino, eighth, Tatsuki Suzuki, ninth, and Nicola Antonelli, Ted. An emotional weekend, of course, for that team, the sick 58 Squadra Corsa team uh, at the circuit, of course, where we tragically lost Marco Simoncelli seven years ago. They both got into the top ten uh, last weekend. Championship standings, Martin now cannot be caught. He's 26 clear of Bezeki with 25 left on the table. Uh, Bezeki takes a nine-point lead into the finale in Valencia next weekend. He looks to finish as the championship runner-up. Um, Bastianini is probably going to finish fourth, although he could still be caught by Dallaporta in fifth. Aaron Cannett is sixth. Gabriel Rodrigo, who did not race in Malaysia last weekend due to the injury he sustained in the crash which wiped Bezeki out in Australia, he is seventh. Uh, Jakob Kornfowl stays eighth, having failed to score this weekend. He crashed, remounted, and finished 20th. Albert Renas is now up into ninth on uh, uh, 97 points. And Marcos Ramirez completes the top 10 
on 95 points. He, of course, will be Dallapolta's teammate at Leopard next year. Uh, now, Moto2 up next, and uh, the championship that we all expected to be decided, and uh, it didn't disappoint. It was decided in favour uh, of Francesco Bagnaia, and this one's kind of been on the cards for a few races, Dreas. This season has kind of mm. reached the autumn months. Bagnaia has started to stretch away from Miguel Oliveira. Um, we'll get the sort of negativity out of the way right up the top. The celebration was a bit of a farce. Um, after the race, where they they seem to set a bit, they seem to set a bit of a tent up while they changed the fairing. They pretty much changed everything um, externally on the bike that was initially in Sky Ocean Rescue colours and was then changed to uh, black and gold championship winning colours with a number one on the front. <laughs> uh, and then the bike wouldn't restart, uh, so poor Pecco in his brand new leathers couldn't uh, ride his championship winning bike back to Part Ferme. Um, but that was probably the one blot really on what has been a tremendous season for Banyaya. Um even Australia the one race weekend where he was way off the pace he still did what he had to do and just followed Oliveira home to uh, preserve um, his championship lead he scored points in every single round which in fairness Oliveira has two they have been uh-huh. the two much like Martina Bezeki they have been the two clear class of the field riders in Moto2 but in the end Banyaya was just a shade better yeah, I completely agree. It's um, it it it's it's been coming the way the seasons played out. I mean, the, I think since the break, I think it's just been a little bit clear that like Banyai just has a little bit more extra quality in him, a little bit extra, a little bit more consistency between him and the Calix compared to Oliveira. I think Mategi was just the key round. We saw we saw we saw it. Banyai was ultimately inher- inherited the win after Quattararo's disqualification. You could see he was riding his usual ultra smooth style, his metronomic sort of style. Oliveira was riding the nuts off his KTM just to keep it in contention. You could see that Miguel had nothing more to give, and that's kind of been the story of the season, really. And um, Miguel's racecraft has been phenomenal all year long, and I will take a, a time out to say Miguel Oliveira has been phenomenal all year long, and like he, he he could end up with something close to three hundred points and not win the championship, which is crazy. That many other years, 272 would be a title-winning score. Um, and it's probably going to be more by the time the season end, ends up. But Oliveira's been phenomenal, but Banyaya has just been in a different league. He's very close to, again, the quality we saw from Johan Zarco and Tito Rabat in the last three years is these world-class, consistently excellent, you know, Moto2 riders who can just win almost any given race on paper and are just not going to make mistakes and are just consistently class week in and week out. And that was what Banyaya brought to the table. If he had a clean run from pole, he wins. It's as simple as that. Like he, hmm. he, he was the sort of guy you don't challenge over a weekend. If he's fast and, he, and he's feeding the bike, he's winning. It's a, it's, it, was a, it, it was as simple as that. And Oliveira had to had to had to punch and fight and scrape for every result he could get. But Nia won. He looks like he could win with one hand behind his back. And I'm not saying that's that's a bad thing in Miguel's case, but it's just the nature of Banyaya's style and in his consistency. He just didn't have. I mean, he had two bad days the whole season, really. Argentina was one, and then Philip Island was really the other. But that wasn't even really a bad day because Miguel had a bad day too. It didn't really count. Um, and yeah, as a result, he just ended up just, he made it incredibly hard for Oliveira to ever keep up with him because 
he was virtually perfect. And again, he didn't win this weekend. He didn't have to win this weekend. He could, as long as he could see Oliver up ahead, he was always going to win the title. It, it, it had been coming, and yeah, much deserved for Peko. Just a shame about the whole fairy and replacement thing. Mm. Um, that's the biggest error of your weekend. You've probably done all right. Yeah, to be fair. yeah, and it's it's not a bad problem to have, isn't it? Oh yeah, we failed uh, to. Uh, yeah, we made a bit of a mistake in how we celebrated our championship win. Well, at least you won the championship. Um, I'll right. talk a bit now while Dre celebrates one Matter's goal in uh, in Turin. Oi! Um, and uh, yeah, you've scored, mate. Um, yes. Unfortunately, Ronaldo <laughs> scored earlier, so it's one-one. Um, but uh, but uh, yeah, the uh, the season that Banyai has had um, uh, has been remarkable, and we've just spoken about Jorge Martin as a potential freak level talent that's moving in the direction of MotoGP in the future. Because Banyai is going to be there next year um, in MotoGP, and surely he is in that category too as a freak level talent um, heading towards MotoGP next season because he's. Mm. I mean, he's he, he's only in year two. We need to put this into context. No one has ever won the Moto2 Championship in their rookie season. So the earliest anyone has ever won their Moto2 Championship is in year two, year two. which Mark Marquez did. Now Francesco Bagnaia has done. Special company. Very special company. That's a very good point You didn't you, that, I, that I've forgotten, that you're absolutely right. No one's ever won the Moto2 field as a rookie, technically, except Tony Elias, because that was the first year of the Clotters' inception. <laughs> I guess in that sense, but you know, that's a very experienced rookie, shall we yeah. say? Uh, um, but uh, race winner, yeah, but yeah, yeah, but, exactly, but, 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 yeah. to to be operating at that level in just his second Moto Two season with a team who, let's not forget, are in only their second season in that at this level too. Sky VR Forty Six haven't been a Moto Two team in a while. And Francesco Bagnaia, he's not even he's still twenty one. Dre, he doesn't turn twenty two until January. Yeah, that's that's pretty outrageous. I mean, like, again, might well have just picked the, the the best rider of the next the next ten years. He could very well be. He's got a lot of qualities that suggest top flight success. Best one day. outside of MotoGP, I should say, with the old Jewish exactly. Mark Marquez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. I, I see. I know what you were getting there, Frank. Yeah, but uh, you know, I, I totally see what you mean. I mean, like, I remember distinctively seeing people like Julian Ryder and James Toseland and Neil Hodson for BT Sport, and guys like David Emmett, who said two years ago, when he was still riding for Mahindra in Moto3, keep an eye on this kid. He's very special. And His I, performances did stick out like a sword. And let's not forget, he was making hmm. his teammate look very average at that time, and his teammate was a guy called Jorge Martin. Yeah. Like... It's funny how things. It's funny yeah. how a year changes everything. Yeah. Like imagine that Aspar team of, of Moto Three back in 2016, and they both clinched world championships on the same day. It's, it's kind of funny how that turned out, isn't it? That's really kind of scary. That like the difference that two years can make, and you know, Martin is 20 and Manuel is 21, and you know they're now both world champions in different categories. It's amazing. I mean, like Pecco Manuel was the only competitive Mahindra that last year was with the factory before they pulled out of Moto3 altogether to focus on Formula E. And Banyaya was... Yeah, he had a couple of eyebrow-raising performances last season as well. I remember in Le Mans where he very beat a rampant Frankie Morbidelli over the course of a season at, 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 at Le Mans. And he had a couple of really big performances last year as well. So he's one of the few guys that walked into Moto2 and was successful right away. You don't get that very often. 
I mean, a lot of it in Moto2 will boil down to just intense rider competition because it is, the, for me, the hardest series in bike racing to win consistently at because it is so ultra-competitive where because everyone's virtually on the same bike and on the same chassis, you've got to be phenomenal to be consistent and to win week in, week out. And Bagnaia is one of only really three or four guys who's done that in the last half decade. You're putting him in the class of... Rabat, who again was in year four when he won his first title. Zarco was in year four when he won his first title. Um, and this is year two for Pekka Baniaia. And he's dominated this championship and has had, what was it, eight wins this season in Moto2? Again, the second most ever. I think the second most ever in the class. I think it's like tied with Zarco and, and Marquez. I think they have both had eight each in their title winning seasons. Like we are dealing with a with a special talent here, and again, I feel like a broken record saying this. I'm no, just I talking agree. about. I absolutely but, agree. I have to, I have to say, this is another insight. People who aren't listening live traded so well to hold it together during that podcast. Good for happening during Manchester United are suddenly <laughs> winning. Um, anyway, uh, I don't know how I've held on to this. Yeah, it's, it's Juventus yes! won Manchester United too, and God knows how. Um, but uh, <laughs> but hey, um, yeah. Again, while Dre again tries to restate Mateus Capoja, I'll vamp a bit. Um, and uh, Banyaya, he's very rare that mo- drivers move out of Moto Two into Moto GP, and they're disaccomplished. I mean, even Mark Marquez, when he moved out of Moto Two as world champion, I think we were stalking him, thinking, yeah, there are rough edges to him as a rider that he needs to to sort of iron out. You can argue he still hasn't, but he's still winning championships. Um, right, but um, but you look at Francesco Bagnaia this season, Dre, and, and the wins that he's put together, and just the general season and body of work he's put together. As we've discussed, he scored points in every single race. Um, yeah, you know, with the exception of uh, the races at, um, well, even includes Saxa Rinks, he was knocked off the track by um, by uh, Pasini, wasn't he? Early in that race, that wasn't yeah, his fault. It was. um, <laughs> it's only really Australia and to a lesser extent Catalonia where he's he's underperformed. He's moving into MotoGP, and of course he's not the complete finished rider yet, because no one will be at 21, but he doesn't have look like it. He might be the nearest thing to a complete package that I have seen in the, in the, in the bottom like, I, I'm watching this season, Dre, and I'm struggling to think of an obvious weakness. There isn't one. I, 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 I've got nothing for you here, Lewis. Like, seriously. I'm... He could qualify. He's had, what, six yeah. pole positions this year? Six pole positions, eight victories, 300-plus point season in his second year in Moto2. And he doesn't have, like, like he... like He could scrap it out, as we saw in Austria. Yeah, yeah like, this, here's the thing. The obvious comparison, there's only one, and that's Mark Marquez. And Marquez was still rough around the edges by the time we got to... I mean, maybe, maybe no one's had the ultimate, ultimate pace that Marquez had in Moto2, where he could literally win from the back of the field. But Banny Iris is complete a package as a bike rider that I have seen in the in the bottom two classes in years. And he's not got that like the the excuse the experience card that Zarko and Rabat had before them before moving up. He's done all of this and he is still not twenty two till early next year. Um Ducati seems to have captured one hell of a bike rider here. Um, yeah, there's your successor I, to Andrea Vizioso, right there. Um, oh, God, Francesco yeah. Jesus, what, a talent. What, what an incredible talent he is. And, and when we look at this championship and the way it's unfolded, of course, he, he started the season uh, with uh, with victory. Of course, he took his, what was his first win 
uh, at this level in Qatar at the start of the season with a with a very close head-to-head battle with Lorenzo Baldessari that went all the way down to the final corner. Underperformed in Argentina in, again, slightly iffy conditions. He never really looked comfortable from the get-go in Argentina, but came back again to win in Texas. He's never had a... Every time he's had a sort of iffy race, he's always come back and won the next one, um, which which is, again, a measure of how good um, Banyaya is. Um, but again, if I was to pinpoint one race, and I've already mentioned it a minute ago, one race that not just summed up, I think, why Banyaya was the best this year, but also why him and Oliveira were the two best, and are both two MotoGP-ready riders already. It's the race in Austria. One of the races of the mm. season. Um, it's I think only Philip Island can really match it for the best race that Moto2 has produced this year. Right. Just a world-class display from Banyaya and Oliveira in a straight head-to-head. Banyaya tried everything for lap after lap on Oliveira and looked like he had no real option. Looks like Oliveira just had everything covered. Uh, yet Banyaya somehow managed to pull a victory out of his backside on the very last lap. And again, that is the kind of thing that world champions do. It was a champion's ride. And yeah, for me, a race of the year candidate. I'm sure it will come up when we inevitably do the Bike Live Awards uh, towards the end of the month. Um, which God, that's coming around quick, isn't it? Um, but uh, it, it was a magnificent display of top-tier, world-class motorcycle racing from both him and Miguel Oliveira. Um, Oliveira just—it was—it was—it was a fantastic tactical battle. Um, it was not like a conventional MotoGP top tier fight where it's just two guys beating the shit out of each other. It was different than that. It was—it was Banyaya and it was Oliveira, and they were both stronger on different parts of the track. Oliveira was a lightning rod coming out of turn one. He was legitimately two temps quicker on sectors one and two. But then Banyaya was faster in the twistier parts in the end of the lap, but couldn't find a way around until the last corner on the last lap where he blocked past Oliveira. As, okay, it was aggressive, but it's it, it's what we call legal in bike racing days. And it was a brilliant bullying move. And that was the difference maker. And in the end, they both shook hands and applauded each other for a brilliant ride. As, and Oliveira was pissed off he didn't win that one. And I don't blame him because it was such a brilliant fight. And it was it, went, it was one that went down to the final corner. And yeah, Banyai just about came on top. It was actually a pretty uh, pretty big omen for the rest of the year that Banyai just had a little bit extra quality when it mattered most. But uh, yeah, if you ever want to see one race that, that sums up, you know, where, where maybe where the future of Grand Prix motorcycle racing could be heading... Go find that Austria race one more time and rewatch it. It is a wonderful exhibition from two world-class bike riders and two potential stars of the future. Mm, absolutely, and they're, they're, they're stars now, aren't they? They're, they're both going to be in MotoGP next season. Of course, um, Banyaya is going to have a slight luxury of starting next season in MotoGP on a much stronger bike. Um, being on a well, a 2018 Ducati next season, whilst his teammate Jack Miller is going to be on a 2019 Ducati at that Pramac team. Um and Oliveira, of course, is going to be on that KTM with the Tech 3 team. But they're both going to be stars of MotoGP for, I think, the next decade. I think they really are. Absolutely. Um, and, and, what a, and what a season. And, and as I mentioned right at the top, Dre, as, as the season is kind of headed into the autumn months, Banyaya has just proven too strong for Oliveira. But if we're being hypercritical, and I guess at this level we kind of have to be to try and pick apart why one was better than the other... Hmm. Oliveira's qualifying deficiencies this season have probably left him with just too much work to do on Sundays. 
Yeah, and I, as a disclaimer, let me just say, I think Miguel Oliveira is a fantastic talent. Oh, and and And... Like he was every bit as good as the Moto Free Rider that very nearly won that championship too. He's now a two-time runner-up in two different championships. And as James um, Tosland rightly made the point on BT Sports weekend, mm. at that level, when you look at how hard these championships are to win in MotoGP, that might be now Miguel Oliveira never winning a world championship. That might be the best chance he ever has to win a world championship in his entire career. It sounds harsh, but it could be true. It's as terrible as it is to say. Um, you could very well be right, and that is sad. And that, yeah. and that again, that won't that won't tell the full story of Miguel Oliveira's um, rise through you know the rise through the, the smaller classes. Because let's not forget who very nearly reeled in an eighty-point championship gap to Danny Kent three years ago in Moto Three, and through some, he might have had the greatest Moto Three run of form that I think I've ever seen uh, when he was riding for Red Bull KTM in Moto Three, and his racecraft was absolutely inch perfect, week after week after week. I forget. Well, I think we have forgotten just how phenomenal Miguel Oliveira can be. And again, mm. we are. I'm being hypercritical when I say his qualifying wasn't good enough, and a lot of that is the nature of Moto Two, where Two tenths can cost you a row. That's the that's the harsh nature of a series that is so uber competitive. But he made it a bit too difficult for himself for that reason. Miguel just tried. Um, his qualifying struggles meant he had to overdo it in races, and often sometimes it worked. Like in Harefer, he went from thirteenth to second in three laps, and again he just go, "Wow, what a talent!" And other times, like an hour gone, he finished in seventh, and that just wasn't good enough. And that's it was weekends like that that opened the door for Manny to effectively hammer home the title in in, in the closing rounds. But uh, Oliver, I, I don't even care about the qualifying all that much because his racecraft, again, all year long, superb. Didn't have a single crash all year. Only once out of the top seven all year long. You know, just didn't maybe have enough to win races consistently like Banyaya does. There is no substitute for winning, especially in Moto2, especially when you've got such a freak talent in front of you as the only guy who was better than him. I mean, yeah, we get excited about Brad Binder, who's had more wins than he has. He's still 70 points behind him in the mm. championship. And Brad Binder is a quality bike rider. And Oliveira has laid waste to him over the course of this season. Um, and don't get me wrong, I'm very excited about oh, Binder yeah. for next year. But like Oliveira is in a different league to everyone in Moto Two, except for Peko Baniaya, and it's somebody had to lose this championship fight because it it's the second time in three years Oliveira has been this close, and you know it's a it's a shame because he's such a talent and he's an incredibly intelligent thinking man's bike rider. Um, an ideal guy to have in any team, and again, I, I, I'd love to see how he does under Hervé Poncherol um, at KTM next year. Um, um, you know, it's a, it's a very, very talented team. Um, Fee Siren, which we'll get to in the top flight later on as well, as you know, is, again, has been better than I think anybody could have expected in MotoGP, and, and you've got you know, Portugal's first top flight rider since Tony Elias coming in next year. Um, yeah, like, I, we're being critical and we're being very harsh when we talk about Oliveira in this context because, my God, he's a phenomenal rider as well. Just, you know, he's 99% of what Banyaya is as a talent. Maybe the KTM let him down on a few occasions. 
maybe. I'm not sure on that. It's hard to say, but he's a fantastic rider, and I can't wait to see how he gets on next year. Mm. Uh, we're we're going to come on to MotoGP um, in just a second, but um, as bizarre as this sounds... Um, we better finish by talking about the guy who actually won the race uh, in Sepang this weekend, um, which um, is a real shame that it's been overshadowed by the championship being won by his teammate. Um, but the two champion contenders ultimately could not keep up with Luca Marini, um, who took his first ever uh, hey. victory um, of his career. And I have to say, one of my abiding images of, of last weekend was a photo that was shared on Twitter, Dre, of Valentino Rossi's Malaysian Grand Prix victory in 2010. Um, at Sepang and in the background uh, of his celebratory photos in uh, Part for Me was there a young child in the background smiling at his elder half-brother winning the race and it was Luca Marini um, just looking on uh, and eight years later yeah, and it will never be ignored because of the family connection it will always get brought up but of course. forget who his half-brother is now Dre Luca Marini is a Grand Prix winner in his own right and uh, and it's been coming it has been coming. He has been great, like ever since, ever since like, the Saxon ring where he had that. He was challenging for the win with Binder. I mean, that was three guys all chasing the first class victory in 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 that in that Moto Two race, and that's when Luca Marini really arrived. Very one. In, he, yeah, he was unlucky not to win at Bruno. He was really unlucky mm. not to win at Bruno. He was he was just on the losing side of a phenomenal Oliveira again. You know, doubled it up with another podium in, in Austria. You know, again, the best of the rest besides that man, that epic man, the Ira Oliveira fight. He beat Marquez that day for third place as Marquez binned it on the final corner. Marini's been here to stay for a little while now. And again, another solid run of form. And this win has been coming. It has absolutely been coming. He's he's getting faster and faster. And as, as Julian Ryder pointed out, on Twitter on Monday after the race, he, he makes you wonder if Marini had been healthy all year long, just how close he would have gotten to some of the real heavy hitters in the championship, like Binder, like Binder, Baldazari, Marquez, who you know have been fighting for third for quite some time now. Marini's probably missed out just due to some of those, uh, you know, slightly poor finishes um, at the start, and not him not being fully healthy. But um, no, Marini's been superb for quite some time now, and yeah, this first win certainly. Yeah, it's been a been a tremendous sort of rise through this season for Luca Marini, who oh, I'm trying to think back through his career. He wasn't actually a regular rider um, in this Moto Two class up until, as I'm looking back. 2016, he became a regular rider at this class because he only did one race in Moto3, and that was as a wild card a long way back. He He's not taken the sort of traditional route uh, into MotoGP or into the MotoGP paddocks. He he won the CEV, uh, what was or what is now the European Moto2 Championship, what was the Spanish Championship. He went that route um, into Moto2, came into the forward team, and as recently as last year, I mean, he was only 15th in the championship last year. Uh, with only a couple of top six results through the season. So it's really this season where he's just gone up a couple of levels um, this year. And, of course, he will then be stepping into, much like Brad Binder at KTM, but he'll be expected to step into the leadership position within his team with uh, a rookie coming alongside him. Of course, at KTM, it's Martin. At VR46, it's Bulliger, um coming into their team. And Luca Marini, I think, is now well-placed to take on the leadership of that team and... Who's to who's to say next season it's not going to be another battle between a Sky VR46 rider and a Red Bull KTM rider for the Moto2 Championship? But this time Marini and Binder, um, they'll certainly start amongst the two favourites uh, for next season's mm. championship. But yeah, we're delighted for Luca Marini, who's 
Um, as I say, been knocking on the door for a little while now for his first World Tour 2 win, and he finally got it. Um, the result then last uh, weekend in Sepang. Luca Marini, the first time winner from uh, Miguel Oliveira, who took second. It was only ever going to be enough if Francesco Bagnayat failed to score, but Bagnayat followed him home uh, in third place to wrap up the championship in the end. Mattia Piscini um, taking fourth position. He was the best of the rest in the end, um, atoning in some way for his crash from pole position. Uh, in Australia last weekend, where he looked to have that stunning pace in qualifying, but just did not convert it um, on the Sunday. Fifth in the end went to the uh, speed-up of Fabio Quattararo, who, of course, will be riding this time next year for this, uh, the team that runs the circuit, uh, Spanish International Circuit in MotoGP next year. Lorenzo Baldassari in sixth. Alex Marquez, who absolutely dominated every practice session and qualifying, then, in true Alex Marquez fashion this year, I'm afraid, went missing when it mattered in the race, finished seventh. Um, which is a real shame because it looked like he was all set up for his first win of the year. Didn't happen in the end. Brad Binder, a little off colour for him after the win in Australia, eighth. Marcel Schrotter, ninth. And Juan Mir, tenth. Uh, championship standings then. Championship is now wrapped up for Francesco Bagnaia. He cannot be caught uh, by Miguel Oliveira. Um, Bagnaia leads it. Uh, now in the championship by 32 points. Brad Binder has secured third in the championship now, um, so he'll be getting a medal and a picture at the uh, FAM Gala after Valencia. Uh, Lorenzo Baldassari is fourth. Alex Marquez goes back ahead of Juan Mir into fifth and sixth uh, in the championship. That one will go down to the wire, though, in Valencia. Luca Marini jumps all the way up to seventh now on 147 points, jumps ahead of Schrotter and Vieje uh, with Fabio Quartararo completing the top ten. Right, that's the good news for the Rossi family. Now for the bad news, MotoGP, um, and a fascinating MotoGP race that we got last weekend. It was a MotoGP race which we haven't actually mentioned this, even though we've talked about Moto2 and Moto2. We should mention the schedule that was changed, um, and it was largely with this race in mind, the MotoGP race, which was scheduled initially for four o'clock, uh, three o'clock actually, local time, and uh, in Sepang last weekend, but with the uh, monsoonical rain that delayed qualifying for an hour and a half they made the decision uh to bring the races forward by two hours mm. first of all it gave me silverstone flashbacks um and i don't want to be reminded of that weekend again um really? but once again we said this before drake Dolna deserved quite a lot of credit actually given the uh tendency for you know large quantities of rain to arrive late in the afternoon in Malaysia. They deserve an awful lot of credit for acting to avoid that, bringing the race forward to ensure we got a MotoGP race in. And it appears from what we had in Malaysia last weekend is if the riders have kind of pulled rank and have basically said to Dorna, from next year onwards, we don't want the scenario again. Start the MotoGP race at a sensible time, please. Right. I'm... I, I, I like that the riders, I think, have finally come together. You know what, Dorna, if I your fancy race minute putting the eight in shit. <laughs> like, like, and, like, get and it's this... like that I get why they've done it. They've done it to try and make it a more sort of sociable hour for European viewers. But if it had started at its normal time, it would have been still been seven AM. And surely if MotoGP That's fans are gonna get up at, if they're gonna get up at seven AM on a Sunday morning, they're gonna get up at five AM. Yeah, like 
I get it. I, I, I get both sides of the equation. Dorna wants to be as facilitating towards the European audience as possible because that's where the majority of their viewership and, and, and sponsors and TV contracts are coming from. Totally understand that. It's a dead, it's a dead slot at five in the in, at seven in the morning. Um, it's for Spain, Sunday. Yeah, Spain is eight. I mean, that's not so bad. It's never been so bad. So yanking it two hours early and making it a five a.m. start in the UK was brutal. I mean. Uh, how are you still alive? I didn't watch it live, Lewis. How are you still alive after three rounds of flyaways and 5 a.m. starts? Like, oh, I don't know how you're still, you're still recovering now. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it takes it out of you. Yeah, if, if you're covering all three classes, it, it does. Um, and... as I do, it takes it out of you. And, mm. and yeah, it's, it's, they, yeah, they, they, the logic behind starting the races at those times made perfect sense. It absolutely did. But this is two straight weekends now where the riders are basically being far from happy with the scheduling. They weren't happy with the race starting so late in the afternoon in Australia because the temperature drops late in the afternoon. Because there was, I mean, they can't really help the time of year that they race in Australia because it's it's you know just coming out of their winter or, or just coming towards their summer, of course, as you, if anyone who follows cricket will know because their summer of cricket's just starting um, in Australia. Um, and they can't run it at the start of the year because the World Superbikes are there. Um, so that's a problem, but... They still could start the race at a slightly better hour where the temperature's higher and the weather's better. Likewise, in, in Malaysia, they could start the race a little earlier before the major rain hits. And they took one look at the weather forecast, Donna, and thought, no, we're getting another Silverstone here if we don't if we don't bring this forward. And granted, as we told you on Bike Live back in September, they have now introduced measures in MotoGP, whereas a Monday race would have probably happened and it got rained off. Um, on Sunday mm-hmm. because they now have that that provision in place for every Grand Prix. They have the setup in place where be a, be prepared to race on a Monday if at all possible. Um, but I think everyone after three flyaways and three weekends wanted to go home on the Sunday. So I think they were all glad <laughs> to get a race in. Um, no but kidding. yeah, the race in the end got brought forward and in the end, based on the fact that the rain arrived, an absolute deluge arrived uh, about an hour or so after the MotoGP race finished, it was absolutely the right call um, to race yeah. at 1pm um, in the end. And let's talk about the race we got, Dre. Mark Marquez had to start from seventh on the grid because he got in the way of Andrea Ioni in qualifying. Um, without discussing that at length, the right call and the only call, really, that Dorna yeah, and the, the stewards could make um, based on the fact that Mark Marquez, totally unintentionally, we're not blaming Mark Marquez or pinning any malice on him. He was just, you know, he was kind of like, I think he was probably a lack just of concentration, if nothing else. Yeah, he got caught out, looked the wrong way, basically held... Uh, you know, and he up on a fast lap while Mark was on an outlap. An outlap that he was on on his number two bike because he just crashed his number one bike earlier uh, in qualifying. Yep. How very Mark Marquez. Um, but yeah, he got demoted to seventh on the grid having taken pole position. Joan Zarco got promoted onto pole with Valentino Rossi second. Valentino Rossi then takes the lead right at the start of the race and leads it and leads it and leads it um, up until lap 16 um, or to the start of lap 17. And we'll talk about what happened there in a bit. Um, and it seems like a bit of a, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this. It always seems like talking about, oh yeah, a player did, a player had the best game of his life until he put one in the back of his own net. It almost feels like that, in saying mm-hmm. that this was the best ride of Valentino Rossi's season until he crashed. Because the crash kind yeah. of negates all of that. But, that mm. said, from Yamaha's point of view, based on where they've been for most of this season, how much heart must they take and Valentino Rossi himself must they take from the consistency of race leading pace that Valentino Rossi was showing for three quarters of that Grand Prix on Sunday. 
I think it's fair to say at this point Yamaha are back. Like this is the third, this is the third race in a row they've been competitive, and like, and we gave them no price around Sepang. Yeah, we didn't give them a prayer around Sepang. They openly admitted they were going to struggle around Sepang, but some radical changes to the bike, and bang. Next thing you know, Yamaha, uh, uh, Yamaha led the vast majority of that race, and yeah, it's it, it's it's a phenomenal job from Valentino again to just lead from the charge. His consistency, I mean, unbelievable. Um, it says a lot about the the quality of your race when Jorge Lorenzo had withdrawn from the weekend again after FP3, had um basically took to Twitter and said. The first 10 laps were unlike anything he's ever seen from Rossi. And, you know, for a 39-year-old to be riding this well is... It, I'll, give you his, I'll give you his lap times here. Um, for obviously, it. forget lap one, because that was from a standing start. But from lap two onwards, these were Valentino Rossi's lap times. 201 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2-0-1-0, 2
not just in between those two riders, but at that circuit, it's a pang. It's it's Valentino Rossi and Mark Marquez. You know, the idea of those two fighting for the victory at the very end of a Malaysian Grand Prix at Sepang, based on what's happened between those two there. Uh-oh. Incredible Uh-oh. script for the, for the Grand Prix. You could tell how badly those two wanted to win that race. No, badly they wanted to beat each other. And mm-hmm. you could see how hard they were trying to get it done. Mark Marquez was clearly on the limit. And although it didn't look it at the time, Dre, we soon found out on that 17 that Valentino was on the limit too. Yeah, um, simply put, he he, oversee, he goes in and he loses the rear in it. But, um, and that was it. Like, I, I, there, was a, there was some great insight about this saying, oh, could Marquez have saved that if, 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 it, if it was Marquez in that position? And Maverick was the one that came out and said, well, he couldn't because it wasn't the like, front that went. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't the front that went, and it is literally impossible to ride the Yamaha M1 that way. He said it himself. It was like, if you try to do what Marquez does on the front tire on a Yamaha, it will just stand the bike up. Like, the bike will just literally not lean. It's not built and designed to do that. Marquez himself, though, was 101% trying to win that race. This is a quote from him after the race. He said, This weekend, I saved maybe 10 crashes with my elbow. I've never had so many moments. I was fighting against myself and fighting against the bike to be as close as possible to Valentino to attack at the end. It was an extra hard race because I didn't have a perfect bike. So I was riding on instinct, not using my head. I didn't have anything more. If I had been still racing for the championship, I would have finished third or fourth or maybe second. But I didn't have that pressure. So I was pushing to the limit. This year, I've saved one crash per race. Today, I saved three or four. Don't think for a second that neither one of these guys didn't sit for a second. Because yeah, they looked absolutely... like Mark Marquez spent all the free practice in qualifying trying to crash. Exactly. Like, he did not it's... look comfortable at any stage of the weekend, really. He didn't. He was going beyond the limit to, to, to try and find any sort of, of, of pace. So, of course, he had his 80th career pole and 70th career win, just like the form book suggested. <laughs> his camp points out he lost it so bad, someone else crashed because Andrea Iannone yeah, fell exactly. behind him. Uh, when Iannone, uh, when Marquez lost uh, lost the front at the final corner and had to pick the bike up, Iannone just got frightened into his crash, his own crash at the last corner. Mm. Um, but, but, yeah, it was, I have to say, I was gutted when Valentino Rossi crashed. I mean, partly for the same reason as everyone else, or not everyone else, but a lot of a lot of the other people watching Must GP. Because, as Neil Hodgson said, and I think Neil Hodgson says it because he's a bit of a Valentino Rossi fanboy, but he said the one thing kind of missing from this Grand Prix season was a Valentino Rossi win. And I get that. I totally get that because he means so much to this sport. Um, mm-hmm. And it would have been, given that the championship is already over and that Marquez has had it wrapped up, it would have been a great story for Must GP for Valentino Rossi to win again of course. for Yamaha because it's been so long I get that I get what it would have meant for the sport but from my point of view Dre and I think from your point of view as well we were gutted that Valentino Rossi crashed because the race was building towards a grandstand finish that we were just rubbing our hands at yeah anyone that knows bike racing knows arguably it's at that very Grand Prix circuit three years ago and yeah I'm not so much gutted that Valentino Rossi didn't win I'm not going to pretend or any sort of allegiance towards Valentino whatsoever. People that know me well know that already. But I will not deny that he is an integral part of the sport. And I, I totally get the thinking of it needed a Rossi win. Totally get that. 
why more gutted we didn't get a grandstand finish like we had three years ago because people forget about Sepang 2015. It was a friggin' fantastic Marquez versus Rossi fight until Rossi lost his head and we got that penultimate corner clash. Like, until then, it was a fantastic fight of two guys almost losing it on several occasions, just pushing each other to the absolute limit. And that was early in a race, not at the end. It was crazy. Um, so I would have loved to have had, you know, one more grandstand fight between you know, Marquez and Rossi to win a Grand Prix at Sepang. I think it would have been a phenomenal way um, to, to, to close out the weekend's racing. Shame we didn't get it in the end, but uh, it was a race that was tense, it was dramatic, and it was great in its own way, even if we didn't get the finish we were all hoping for. Mm, absolutely, and uh, yeah, it's, it's becoming a bit of a theme now for Valentino Rossi. Uh, three years ago, he lashed out with his leg. Uh, this year, he lashed out with his hands. But I think when you're a marshal and you're there to try and maintain rider safety and you try and take a selfie with the guy who's just crashed out of the lead of a race, you deserve everything you get. Um, so um, so I don't think we're going to stand here and try and uh, lash Valentino Rossi for twatting a marshal around the head. Um, what are you doing trying to take a selfie with the bloke, for goodness sake? Um, yeah, but, Jesus just unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable idiocy. Um, but anyway, uh, Mark Marquez inherited the win. I, who knows? He may well have won anyway, because as Maverick Vinales said after the race, just like it did in uh, Phillip Island, the, the rear tyre was starting to go on that Yamaha in the final three or four laps. Um, of course, we never got to see how Valentino Rossi would have fared had he not crashed. So he may well have encountered those same problems. He may well have just lost that level of pace in the final three laps that would have brought him back to Mark Marquez anyway. And lost mm. the race win. We will never know, and that's the kind of the, the sort of the the feeling of sort of the flat feeling in my stomach is that we never got to find out how a straight fight between those two would have gone um, in exactly. the final three laps. Um, but Mark Marquez, in many ways, obviously he saved a lot of crashes himself, but that's what the great riders do. They they earn that little bit of luck. They make their own luck, as they often say in sport. And he was there to put the pressure on. He was there to take advantage. If Mark Marquez wasn't chasing Valentino Rossi so hard, Rossi could have just, you know, stroked it home and taken an easy win. It was Mark Absolutely. Marquez who was the only guy who could really keep pace and he made that mistake happen. Make no mistake about that. Exactly. It was a it was a forced error um from Valentino Rossi. An error forced upon him by Mark Marquez and of all the wins he's had this season, this in many ways was one of the more surprising ones because it wasn't a race that he just went out and dominated. It wasn't a race that he, you know, went out and took from another ride. It was a race that kind of fell into his lap in the closing stages. But, uh, you know, Mark Marquez continues to add extraordinary numbers. What's that, 70 career wins now? Um, 70 wins in all Mark classes. Marquez and four positions in all classes. Yeah, it, it's extraordinary numbers that the guy's putting together. Um, mm -hmm. And... What else is there to say about what this guy is putting together? A tremendous, tremendous season he's having. You know, he's now what's that? Nine wins for the season. He could get into double figures in Valencia in two weeks' time, and uh, he, he he never stops learning lessons, does he, Dre? Because he's even now learned yeah. a lesson that if you let Scott Redding anywhere near you on a slowdown lap, bad things will happen. <laughs> get away! Get away! He was waving the flag at him after the race. He was like, "Go away!" No, 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 no. we've been here before, Scott. Um, just the pop his shoulder out again, but yes, Marquez's 70th career victory, his 80th career pole position, which is just utterly mind-boggling numbers. Marquez, and I guess you didn't know already, has two more wins than Jorge Lorenzo, 68, and Lorenzo started his Grand Prix career six years earlier. 
That is how much of a dominant rider Marquez has been over the last half, de- last decade of, of Grand Prix motorcycle racing. He's fifth on the all-time wins list now. He, next, next on the list for him is the great Mike Halewood. It's like we are getting into the really, really special names here. Like Mike Halewood is next on the list on seventy-six, um, and he'll probably get that next year the way he's going at the moment. Um, yeah. So it's. He stack him up as Cam says in the Discord because he's just doing phenomenal. I think, and he, again, it was another race where he rode at the limit and didn't bin it. Amazingly, he didn't bin it. He forced an error out of Valentino Rossi, took advantage of it, and won. And it wasn't again. I said it was not an easy victory. It may look like it on TV, but again, Marquez was over the limit during that entire race, and he only won by 1.8 seconds in the Alex Rins was right there in second, which we'll get to very shortly. But ninth win of the year. And in a Grand Prix weekend where Marquez never looked like he was the fastest guy out there consistently, Poland win. What can you say? That's Poland what champions win, Yeah, he started seventh, as we mentioned. But yeah, he's he is racking up incredible numbers. And let's get there now. Let's get to Alex Rins. He finished second in the race. And mm. that is now eight podiums for the season for Suzuki, um, whose progress you know continues. We shouldn't forget Alex Rins was fastest of all on Friday, so we shouldn't be at all surprised by that. But I think we're at that stage now, Dre, where we are no longer surprised by Alex Rins or either either Suzuki Rider finishing on the podium. They're starting to make a habit of this now. Over the second half of this season, Mark Marquez and Andre Vietasoso on points have been the clear number one and number two guys in the field. The third highest point scorer in the second half of this season has been Alex Rins uh, on that Suzuki. Um, we've been waiting, I suppose... Having seen him, you know, kind of have a bit of have a few rounds off earlier in the season, we've been waiting for Alex Rins in MotoGP now to find that level of consistency and become a a top six guy in MotoGP. Mm. Sure as hell, found it, hasn't he? God, yeah, like I said, the third best guy in the championship since the turn of the break, and, uh, and he's now fifth overall. We- yeah, fifth in the championship. The only four guys ahead of him are Marquez and Dovi, the clear two best guys in the world right now. Valentino Rossi, who's had a freakish year on a Yamaha that does has no right being as high as it is, and Maverick Vinales, who quietly is now only two points behind Valentino. How did that happen? Yeah, he's, um, pulled 30, he's pulled forty points off him in the last two races. Hi, Maverick. Nice to see you show up at the end of the year. Yeah. But the fifth guy on there, and again, it, it, it is a, it, to be fair, it's a close run thing. He is these technically joint fifth with Johan Zarco, but again, Rins has one more third place than he has this season, so Rins is on a second level count back ahead of Johan Zarco, and he's only a point ahead of Cal Grant, probably isn't racing again this season. Uh, but Rins has been phenomenal, and we had question marks about Rins halfway through the year, given that he had so many DNFs, and he'd crushed out from many a good position from in these top five, top six positions in the season, he'd had silly mistakes where he'd gone a bit over the top and he'd crashed it. And, uh, and I was concerned. I was genuinely concerned um, about about Rins' progress and whether he was the right guy to, to lead a team. Totally proving me wrong over the second half of the season. And over the summer break, he has been phenomenal, consistent. Like Him on the podium is no longer surprise. That was his fourth of the year. Uh, individually, the eighth Suzuki podium of the season. And when guys like Marquez are saying, no, this bike is phenomenal, all yeah. it needs is top, yeah. it's, it's top end speed, and it, it, it might be, be a title contender. bike in the field now. Um, exactly. Suzuki. And what proves that is how well it how well it nurses its tyres, Dre. I mean, it, mm. how often are we seeing this now where 
take Philip Island for instance. Maverick Vinales' pace, his pace was dropping off a bit as was Rossi's late in the race. But who were the riders who were showing such strong late race pace? It was the Suzuki riders, particularly Yanone, late in the mm-hmm. race. And last weekend, we saw it with Rins. Um, we saw in Malaysia where obviously Marquez was stroking home in the win. But who was the guy who had the late race pace who we were all looking towards in the final stages as he chased Zarco down? It was Alex Rins. That Suzuki. It's a template for them to build on next year, and we really hope next year that Suzuki don't make the same mistake they made at the start of last year, and you know basically mess up the bike that they've had to build without the you know fallback of concessions to you know develop their way back out of trouble. We hope Suzuki are at this level again next year because that bike handles so well, and in an era of MotoGP where Michelin produced tyres that you know make tyre management such a huge part of the strategy of a MotoGP race now. Mm-hmm. Matt Suzuki, because it's so good at managing its tires through a race, that is such a such a valuable trait to have in a bike. And with Rins mm. now developing that consistently and Suzuki clearly producing a bike that can be competitive right the way to the end of a Grand Prix rather than for two, two-thirds of it, that's a dangerous combination for next season if they get it right this winter. And that's the crucial thing, if they get it right. It's, it's a massive element of it. But yeah, you're right. Having kids that that great is a dangerous weapon to have when MotoGP has so many technical circuits because, hey, it's a template that Yamaha has had for years and they've had many a world champion as a result of having that sort of style of bike. It's it's worked very well for them over the years. Um, you know, as recently as 2016 with Jorge Lorenzo, they've won multiple world championships with that sort of fundamentals in their bike, but let's also pause for a second and realize they are doing this under the concession system where they are a factory two team. They get to test, they get to engine develop. This is going to be the key moment. Now they're going to, it's going to be a critical off season for them because they've now they've lost their concessions. They have to play to the rules of every other top tier team around them now in the championship. And this is what did them in, in 2017. They didn't have a good opening package. They couldn't develop the engine that was lacking on top end speed for such a long time and that's ultimately what did Suzuki in and made them fall down the order to the point where they got concessions again so yeah like Suzuki don't want to be yo-yoing no. doing this no. year in year out they they want to be a consistent top tier threat and they've got a very exciting young team next year Rins to spearhead it and, and then Joanne Mir coming in from Moto2 there's a that team is bursting with young talent um and they've got a fundamentally really solid bike here going forward. They, because that's the thing. Once they, once they're, their 2019 bike is fully developed, they're locked into that for the year, especially on engines. So this is a key off season for development, and they have to get the engine sorted. Yeah, if not, I, I would be impressed. I'd be impressed if Suzuki. Uh, I, I'm not even expecting them to close the gap on the top three next year. If they can be at around this level again next year. That, mm-hmm. would, that would be impressive to me because they will, they will have been proven that they, A, don't need the concessions um, to be quick. But also, this is a team and a manufacturer that doesn't have the same budget as the three manufacturers ahead of them. And we're talking about, we're almost talking about a Force India-style achievement here, aren't we? Because Suzuki mm. do not have the budget, the, the sheer financial power of Honda, Ducati and Yamaha. Dare I say, even of KTM. I think on budget and on um, you know financial muscle, they're probably fifth in the hierarchy of MotoGP. Yeah. Um, but they're they're producing these kind of results. And 
they're, they're almost punching with their weight to do what they're do, doing at the moment. So I think if they can maintain this level next year without concessions, I think they're, they're doing a tremendous job next season. I'm sure they don't see it that way. I'm sure Rins doesn't see it that way. They want to try and make that step up, and they want to win next year uh, and win a Grand Prix next year. And I think that's a very achievable goal for them. Um, mm-hmm. But I hope they aren't putting too much pressure on themselves. And I hope I don't, I don't think we should put too much pressure on them to suddenly become championship threats next season. Because I don't think they have the budget to do that. Um, right. But I, I, I guess it's it, it represents how well Suzuki are doing. It also um, just represents how great an environment MotoGP has created in that Suzuki can be this competitive uh, within the framework of the rules we have at the moment. Um, and MotoGP is all the better for it. That that we're not, and I don't like using the comparison because I'm, I'm not one of those that likes to use uh, Formula One's shortcomings to big up MotoGP's uh, no, benefits. I hate but that. I hate doing that. But um, Formula One, there is a clear um, separate tier of three teams that are clearly away and ahead of the rest, and then you have the rest of the field. But we're mm-hmm. so looking at MotoGP, where we have four manufacturers that are all under the right conditions, able to challenge up at the front of a race, as well Absolutely. as satellite teams with the same packages that can also figure up the front. Uh, and MotoGP, we should never stop um, recognizing how MotoGP have created this environment where. Suzuki can fight at the front. And let's not forget the other rider on the podium, Dre, was Joan Zarco on a year old Yamaha with the independent Tech right. 3 team. And first of all, it's nice to see Joan Zarco back at this level again, starting from pole position and finishing third in the race. But also, given that he's going to be on a KTM next season, this might be the last chance we get for a while to see Zarco on a podium. Yeah, we all know that KTM's got a big. Um, bridge to climb to get you know maybe a second a lap more so we can really start talking about them in the context of you know podiums and wins as opposed to you know patting on the back for a top 10 they're a long way away from where ktm want to be for this it'll be year three of their development going forward and they have a lot of talent rider talent underneath their wing in the top flight in their b team with with, with tech three and in moto two so they're, they're gonna want to start seeing some dividends and some returns for their investment soon um and yeah like like zarko is a fantastic rider there's no doubt about that um but we don't think atm is going to be on that sort of level straight away next year unless some pandora's box gets opened and they find the fountain of youth or something along those lines in there mm. But at, the, but at the same time, that's not yeah. As you, as you mentioned, like Tech Three, a team that we've seen struggle a lot this year. To be fair, this is not the Tech Three of last year. I think the, them having the, the them backing out on Yamaha support going forward, I think, has certainly caused a rift between them and the factory. You know, I mean, why would Yamaha help them out? They're no longer their interest. They've now got a new uh, SIC backed other bike to worry about now. But um, a nice reminder, as Yamaha has found some form at the end of the season, so has Johan Zarco, who was competitive in Phillip Island before the incident with Marquez and was competitive again here to finish third and only a couple of seconds off another victory. Um, it's great to see Zarco back at the front again because he is such a brilliant car to have up there and he makes races more interesting when he's up the front. So, as mentioned, this is MotoGP for you now where literally anyone in the top 10 can win a race if, if all their chips fall in the right way sometimes and Zarco is one of those guys mm, absolutely and we shouldn't forget that he was within a lap of winning at Valencia last year so maybe he will have exactly. one more chance um, of, of fighting at the front before he goes to KTM and probably becomes resigned to fighting in the midfield a little more often although maybe KTM will make progress next season we shall see um, two of the riders I want to talk about though because we have to move on because we have some big world superbike news that we need to talk about before we go 
Um, but two of the riders I want to mention in, in MotoGP before we wrap this up, um, with all due respect to Maverick Vinales in fourth and Danny Pedrosa in fifth, they are not the two. Um, Andre Vizioso, who finished sixth, bizarrely, he said he was happy with that um, after the race, which is, is bizarre mm. because I think we were expecting him to uh, finish no lower than first last weekend. Right. Uh, given how uh, strong Ducati historically are at Sepang and the fact that Dobby had won there each of the last two years from pole position. Uh, off on mm-hmm. the front row at least uh, he was in pole in 2016 and won um, finished his 6th uh, in the Grand Prix Dre, which was which was way below par he secured the championship runner up spot last weekend but not in the way we thought he would no kidding um, yeah like this was a weird one like Vizioso was strangely happy with that saying that they, we've not even traditionally not gone well at Sepang yeah. um, and basically you know said that you know, well, you know we're finding out we for next year you're going to be stronger next year and basically team development spiel in that sense like a brave face on it. Yeah. yeah like like dovi you won six races last year you're not fooling anybody here we like you like we, like you're not going to be happy at finishing that grand prix stick. okay congrats on second place in the championship again a two-time runner up now dovi you know he, he, he truly is the second best rider in the world but this was not a strong weekend for Ducati in general. Ducatis was six, seven, eight, nine this weekend. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing Lorenzo probably would have been somewhere in that mesh as well if he'd actually raced. In, instead, they're too busy getting into arguments about. Yeah. Instead, on, on, um, the guys, guys didn't hear this. Um, Simon Patterson had a word with uh, with Dovi about Lorenzo pulling out of the weekend after FP3, which I thought was interesting. And Dovi said. Um, it's always interesting that uh, this kind of thing always happens to Lorenzo, um, which was a bit of a sly dig. And then Lorenzo had a not-so-sly dig back, saying that uh, he is a true gentleman, an exemplary character. And I think the quote was... Dot, 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 yeah, in 125. Yeah. He's a world champion, dot, 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 in 125. And I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> like... Yeah. Yeah, they're, 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 they're apparently going to have those two in a room for a meeting in Valencia to try and clear the air. Why? Presumably, the table there means that's going to have two big saucers of milk on it um, for, for their two riders. Um, right. Yeah, well, yeah, like you said, Dre, why bother? When you, Lorenzo's leaving the team anyway. Um, and um, you know, I don't think Lorenzo has particularly ever got, well, got on well with any teammate he's been with, has he? Um, which I've, which I've isn't. I'm not, which I'm, I'm, not, I'm not slamming Lorenzo by saying that. It's just... It's the nature of his character. He's he's a, sometimes he can be quite an abrasive character. He doesn't lack confidence, and sometimes that can grate on a teammate. Just ask Valentino. Um, yeah, so... It's amazing given it's, a, it's amazing given that Lorenzo Friday has such a fragile ego. Because... I was going to say that was the other thing I was going to say. And also, when someone else says something vaguely critical about him, he bites. He really bites. He um... bites on it every time. Like Neil Hodson said. Uh, after Philip Island, that he could foresee a scenario where Lorenzo doesn't win a race next year. Lorenzo took to Twitter, found the tweet from BT Sport, and said, "Oh, Hodson must be drunk. Yeah. I want some of his beer." And I'm like, "Well, mate, you didn't win a Grand Prix in your first year at Ducati, so I don't think that was that outlandish a yeah. take yeah, from Hodson." Yeah, because Hodson articulated his point absolutely brilliantly. I could totally understand what you're saying. It's like I'm not saying Jorge Lorenzo is going to struggle on that bike, but I just can't see him on the same bike beating Mark Marquez. Uh, and, which and is I, a fair I, comment. Yeah, which is totally fair. Um, so, so yeah, Jorge Lorenzo. I mean, just think back to think back to that 2015 season and Valentino Rossi's shark helmet that he wore. So Jorge Lorenzo could not resist having a dig back, could he? Uh, when he won the next race at Aragon. 
Um, that's just the nature of Jorge Lorenzo. And, and to be fair, I'm not criticising him for him because I wouldn't change him for it because he may, it adds to the theatre and the pantomime of one's GP. Um, exactly. So, the point I was so, gonna make, yeah, so, so don't yeah. change, Jorge. No, exactly. This is my point I was going to make is that I love that Jorge Lorenzo is such an anti-hero figure. I love him for it. He is the stone cold of MotoGP. He can win any given race on paper on his day. He's a brilliant bike rider, and he's not afraid to speak his mind, even if he's the sort of guy that really doesn't take shit from anybody, and that's kind of fun. And I'm not going to shamelessly plug myself too much, but I made a drapery video about this a couple of years ago, talking about how Jorge Lorenzo was sort of the Lex Luthor of MotoGP. Yeah. And if, if, you're not, if you're not too keen on your comic books, watch the video and you'll see why. I'll put it in the Discord for those that are listening in live. But that's like not much has changed from that from the from the two years ago when I made it. Lorenzo is interesting because I think the sport needs him to be a deflector and to be a guy more grounded in his roots compared to some of the more eccentric talents like Rossi and and Marquez and Dovi, who are much more charismatic, who are much more disciplined in what they have to say. Lorenzo's got a really fragile ego, but it makes for great entertainment. It really does. <laughs> Um, and yeah, that's often you know it's awesome, but yeah, you know, it is, it's, it's awesome. it, and it is going to add to the uh, the, the Marquez Lorenzo story of next year. I was going to call it a rivalry, but I'll, I'll I'll reserve judgment until I actually see them both on the same bike to determine mm -hmm. whether it's actually going to be a rivalry or not. Um, because I do think Mark Marquez is going to be a level above Lorenzo certainly at the at the start of next season. Um, mm -hmm. And if Lorenzo is anywhere near matching Mark Marquez at the start of next season then he is every bit as good as he thinks he is. Um, exactly. And, 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 and hey, if he is, again, MotoGP will benefit uh, if Lorenzo is um, on a par with Mark Marquez um, on some sort of regular basis next year. But the other rider I want to talk about, and we must talk about this guy, and in many ways yes. we have saved the best story to last. The one Malaysian in the MotoGP field, of course there were Malaysians in all classes, Adam Norodin actually, we never mentioned him, did ride heroically in the Moto3 race to come from the pit lane to actually get as high as sixth at one point before he then oh, crashed absolutely. again and dropped all the way back to the back of the field again, poor lad. Um, but Hafiz Siren had a nightmare qualifying in the wet, which was surprising given how well he goes in the wet for riding mm -hmm. in the fish. Um, had to start from the back <laughs> of the field in 23rd. Rides, well, one of the races of his life, because you could argue his first ever Grand Prix at this same circuit in Moto2 was the other race of his life when he nearly won on debut. But, mm -hmm. I mean, I have to say, the emotion, I mean, it almost brought a tear to a glass eye. The emotion of him with his dad on the grid when the, the national anthem is played, and you could see it written all over Hefe Siren's face, how much that moment meant to him to be oh, God, representing yeah. his own country in front of 100,000 of his fellow countrymen. 100,000 were there on Sunday in Japan um, for the Malaysian Grand Prix. Almost all of them. And, and yes, I get there were Valentino Rossi stands. I get there were there was also obviously other stands spotting other riders. But all of those will have been there wanting Hafiz Siren to do well. And for a MotoGP rookie, that is an enormous amount of pressure to place on some young shoulders but just to be fair, Drake, just like his entire MotoGP rookie season, if we're being honest, he did his country and his team so, so proud. What a wonderful ambassador for the country of Malaysia. Jeez, uh, that was... I've never seen such passion and and just will from a hometown rider. But let's not forget, Fee Siren is the first Malaysian to ever ride in the MotoGP top flight. And we should never um, lose sight of the fact that about a month before the season started, 
he wasn't supposed to be on the MotoGP grid at all. Yeah, he wasn't meant to be there. He was an emergency for Jonas Volga when they realized be able to race anymore by the looks of it um and of course we continue to wish Jonas the very best um he's got a nice gig there as the Yamaha test rider now but um Fee Siren was a was a 11th hour replacement he missed the majority of testing and Fee Siren is only a handful of points behind Frankie Morbidelli in the rookie of the year chase and the Fee Siren went from the back of the field to finish in the top 10 in 10th place what an utterly phenomenal performance that was from a fee siren and clearly the hundred thousand malaysians were pushing his bike around for him because like that was sheer power of will that got a fee siren into the top 10 that was an incredible performance from a fee siren and you could see all weekend long just how much this meant to him as you mentioned lewis like national anthem starts playing He's in tears. His dad's on the grid there with him. He flew his whole family out to the Grand Prix for this one. They were in the garage waiting for him when he got back. And he immediately just collapsed to the ground in tears. Mm-hmm. Um, the just entire main grandstand on their feet. Yeah, the entire grandstand had given him a stand innovation. The team had given him the stand innovation. They knew what a phenomenal ride that was. And he immediately jumps out of the track onto the pit lane security and let him sneak back onto the track. Yeah. He, threw, he threw his gloves into it. It was very much like when Sebastian Vettel won the 2013 world title, where he's like, stuff the protocols. I'm just going to start doing donuts in front of the field and threw his gloves into the stands. He was on his knees in tears. Like you can see when Gavin Emmett interviewed him after the race, he was on the brink of crying again, just thanking everyone under the sun from the security department to the team, to his friends, to his family, thanking God. And you, you could see just how much it had meant to Fee Siren um, all along. And um, it, it, was, it was a very special Grand Prix. And again, if... If you don't like that, you don't like motorsport. That was a wonderful story and, you know, a, a wonderful cherry in the top of what's been a fantastic rookie year for Hafiz Siren, a guy that no one ever thought was going to be this good in, in, t- in you know, taking a shock opportunity and then riding that check to the bank. Hafiz Siren, a phenomenal weekend and a, a, a fantastic ambassador for Malaysian sport because that was, uh, it was incredibly touching and wonderful and powerful to see that happen over the course of the weekend it was it was it was inspiring stuff yeah absolutely and actually he i mean it would take a top six result for him next weekend but he still has a mathematical chance of ending the season as the top rookie of the championship um which again is a measure of how good he's been this season the fact that he's gone to the final round and he could still finish as the rookie of the year given that he you know had the least fanfare and by a mile the least preparation of any of those rookies coming to this season just tells you it loud and clear how great a job he's done this season and he's earned very much earned that that retention next season in that um tech three team and of course they'll be running ktms uh next year uh when he will partner miguel Oliveira. happy siren our hats are taken off to you what a tremendous home weekend uh, he had mark marquez the winner then from alex rins and joan zarco um that was your podium maverick vinales came on strong towards the end of the race and finished fourth ahead of danny pedroza who Feels kind of sad to say this. Matched his best result of the season, but that was only fifth. Uh, Andre Vizioso, sixth. Bautista, seventh. Jack Miller, eighth. Uh, Daniel Petrucci, ninth. Uh, and Hafish Siren, of the aforementioned, completing the top ten. Alicia Spargo, eleventh on the Aprilia, ahead of Franco Morbidelli. Stephen Bradley, who deserves a mention, as a stand-in for LCR. He scores points in thirteenth. Ahead of Takaki Nakagami, his teammate, in fourteenth. 
uh, and Bradley Smith took the final point for KTM, uh, denying poor Thomas Lutie his first World Championship point in MotoGP because uh, he finished one place outside in 16th. Xavier oh, Simeon was 17th. Valentino Rossi did trundle over the line in the end in 18th. Uh, Paul Scott Redding um, still finished behind Valentino Rossi by two seconds despite oh, Valentino no. Rossi stopping at turn one and twatting a marshal for 30 seconds before getting back on his bike. <laughs> um, so uh, he still beat Scott Redding to the flag. Um, championship standings then with one race to go. Matt Marquez, of course, was your champion two rounds ago. He is now 101 points. 101 clear. How on brand of Andre Rizzioso in second. Good number. Do- Dovi has secured the runners-up spot. Amazingly, until the uh, crash of Rossi, they were actually in real time going to be level on points going to Valencia, which would have been a great finale to the season. As it is, Dobby's wrapped it up. Rossi, in the end, now has to de- defend a two-point lead of his teammate, despite having been 47 clear two rounds ago of Maverick Vinales. They are third and fourth. Alex Rins, Joan Zarco, Cal Crutchlow injury permitting, Danilo Petrucci, Andrea Noni, and Jorge Lorenzo, who are fourth, uh, fifth down to tenth, can all still finish fit in the championship in Valencia in, two, in a week's time. Um, they are your fifth to tenth in the championship. Just uh, 19 points separates the six of them uh, in the bottom end of the top ten. Uh, Danny Pedroza is 11th, one point ahead of Bautista. Jack Miller's 13th. Morbidelli leads the race for the Rookie of the Year spot on 50 points in 14th. Ten clear of Hafish Sirein. Um And uh, he is the only rider who can now catch Morbidelli because Nakagami, who is the next of the rookies, is 27 points behind Morbidelli. And therefore, even if he somehow pulls a victory from nowhere next weekend, could not catch uh, last year's Moto2 champion. So it is between Franco and Hafish for the Rookie of the Year. That will be settled next weekend. That is pretty much all that has to be decided next weekend in Valencia because the Constructors' Championship has been won by Honda. Marc Marquez, with that victory, secured that last weekend. Repsol Honda also have won the team's championship. Uh, they secured that as soon as uh, Valentino Rossi hit the deck last weekend. Movistar Yamaha now cannot catch them, although they only need one point themselves to secure second in the team's championship ahead of the factory Ducati team in Valencia in a week's time. Right then, not a lot of time to go, so let's rattle through this World Superbike news because, my God, was there plenty of it. Um, oh yeah, to uh, to break at the uh, what is essentially Italy's motorcycle show uh, in Milan, uh, the EICMA show, I believe, is the uh, the official title of it. Um, I'm not going to give you what the acronym stands for because it's all in Italian. Um, but essentially, <laughs> it's a mecca for motorcycle. It's a lot. It's where a lot of the new for 2019 or the new for the next year superbikes and motorcycles are launched. Um, and this week was no exception. Three big announcements concerning superbikes for next year. One of them we were already aware of, but the launch was made official. Um, but two that have now been made official that we sort of half knew about in the case of BMW. Let's start with them. They announced their uh, 2019 World Superbike program. It's the two riders and the team that we thought it was going to be, Dre. It's Tom Sykes and Marcus Reiterberger for BMW at the SMR team, Sean Muir Racing the team that you know this year as Milwaukee Aprilia, for those of you that aren't too mm-hmm. well Superbike uh, familiar. But the fact that this team for next year, Dre, is named BMW Motorrad World SBK, that for me is significant because that tells us that this is full factory. Yeah, this is a full factory BMW F after, like, basically years, basically months out downtime. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Like, okay, I might have to really, like, open the Church of Dre. 
Um, like, because I've been calling for this for months. BMW have the world's highest selling superbike in the BMW S1000 RR. It's an incredibly popular motorcycle. It would totally have made sense for BMW to have more of a direct involvement in its development and in, to participate in motorsport. And it's finally happened. BMW factory backing on, on Sean and Mears, a partnership with them to run a what is essentially a BMW factory team next year with Tom Sykes and Marcus Reiterberger, which is a hell of a team um, to, to run it. Marcus Reiterberger has had all his career success on BMWs um, with the Superstock 1000 and with Altea in the past um, when they're running the, a, a, a glorified stock BMW 1000. Um, and yet here they are. They're now running that team, and it's a fantastic move for the series. It's fantastic the BMW after initially putting out supporting its 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 bike inventors for DTM and well you know what's going with DTM these days they're well struggling to say the least um they are now back in a motorcycle team again and it's fantastic news for the series um to have BMW there as a full-on factory supplier again and I'm very excited with to see what they can do with Sykes and Reiterberger at a a factory developed BMW S1000 RR very tasty Absolutely, and uh, and as I mentioned, the fact that they're calling it what they're calling it—I mean, you, you you often hear the phrase "what's in a name." Uh, well, if they're putting their own name above the door and naming the team BMW Motorrad World SBK, mm-hmm. that means that they're prepared to put their name on it, so they're expecting it to win. That that's what I say. They're expecting it to be very competitive, as in they want to join that that front three of Yamaha, Honda, and yeah, sorry, Yamaha, uh, Kawasaki, and Ducati. That's certainly how I see it, Dre. If they're gonna they're going to call the team BMW. Essentially, what they're calling it is BMW. You know, BMW. Full stop. It's 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 the factory. It's our manufacturer. This is representing BMW on a motorcycle level. Because let's not forget, they do not have any kind of MotoGP effort, despite mm-hmm. many years of us sort of, of rumors of that they may be thinking about it and how we wish they would have done, um, given how much resources they have. So this is basically, as Kawasaki have done for so many years, this is going to be representing their whole motorcycle brand. Um, you know, a lot of yeah. what happens for them as in terms of sales for the future, and they're already selling, as Dre mentioned, more than any other um, company on, on two wheels, will hinge on what they do as a superbike team. Um, because look at what it's done for Kawasaki, and there's pressure on them for next season, but there's excitement too um, with with a world champion on board, as you mentioned, in Tom Sykes, who will surely get a huge sort of burst of energy again, having almost been sort of you know. You can't imagine he must have been punched drunk from being, you know, you know, beaten mm. into a pulp by Jonathan Ray for so many years. This will surely re-energize him. Um, we know how strong this bike is and how strong it can be if a bit of resource is pumped in. That resource is now going to be pumped in. Reiterberger knows the BMW over several years. This is going to be a team that we have to keep a very close eye on um, for next season because Absolutely. I think there's a lot of excitement surrounding this this squad for next year. The other team that confirmed their plans for next season, this one was more of a surprise. Honda. Now, yes, um, they uh, announced their plans for next season uh, at EICMA uh, in Milan. Uh, and I'll read the initial part of the uh, the story on worldsbk.com to you. Honda will participate in the Motor FIM Superbike World Championship as Honda Racing Corporation are set to collaborate with Altea and Morowaki. With Leon Kamiya and Ryuichi Kinari, more on that in a second, preparing to do battle with the new team. Aiming for a fresh start in the World SBK Championship, this news this week sees HRC bring their full backing into the World Superbike Championship. The Japanese manufacturer are looking forward to starting a new relationship with Altea and Morowaki, bringing the Fireblade CBR1000RR SP2 back on track. 
two key phrases you'll have heard in there hrc and full backing um which means that this isn't honda europe that are um you know offering you know, a few quid and one or two engineers this is hrc this is japan this is from the top level of honda who've decided we've had enough of seeing our superbikes ride around the midfield and we're now going to get serious again um in world superbikes and but we'll, we'll talk about their riders in a second dre because boy do i want to talk about their riders um but mm. the fact that hrc are now taking uh, taking world superbikes seriously again how it did a couple of years time how big a week could this prove to be in the, the history of world superbikes and the future of world superbikes the fact that honda and bmw have both decided this week that they are going to give world superbikes their full undivided attention once again well let's put it to you this way ducati unveiled a brand new fourth in panagale for the first time specifically designed to win this championship and that was the third most shocking news to come out of this yeah. motorsport show this weekend and we've like, said and we've said haven't we in previous shows that given how good jonathan ray is these days the best chance you're probably going to get of someone beating him over a season is for one of the other manufacturers to turn it with a bike that simply Jonathan Ray cannot match. Which it's appears the only if way that's what it. Honda and BMW are thinking. Yeah, it's the only way to do it. And like BMW's also unveiled their brand new S1000. It's totally reworked. Ducati have now brought... They finally unveiled a physical version. You know, the, the, the V4 Panagale, again, V4 normally reserved for racing, um, now as a road bike, which is a terrifying thought. I can't wait for Ride Free, the video game, to come out. Um, <laughs> but on top of that, but on top of that, now, yeah, Honda, HRC, like, like it's the Jonathan Ray effect. Everyone wants to beat him now because they know what, what winning this series can do for a manufacturer now. And Kawasaki are laughing knowing that they have got the domestic British champ and the world champ on their machinery in their next year. And now everyone else wants to beat them. And as they say, what wins on Sunday sells on Monday. And Honda, their Fireblades has always been playing catch-up. Um, the old one was in, is in commission for a decade and didn't really win very much towards the end of its life because it was losing out to newer, faster machinery. And now HRC has got full backing to try and take superbikes back, knowing they've already got MotoGP covered with Marquez, why not take World Superbikes as well and you know establish yourself as like the number one bike manufacturer for you know for global popularity on Earth again? They 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 could very well do that. Honda has a knack of, of producing top talent, of looking after top talent, and they can produce very very fast racing teams. So if HRC is coming in. With, a, with with this new Fireblade and seeing what they can get out of it. I am very excited to see what that has got. Um, and their riders, we all know Leon Camier is more than good enough to ride a, a, a good bike to decent results. You see, they with a, a very young compared to the And Cam, in the chat, has rightly mentioned the fact that their new bike hasn't done well for the first two years. It's, mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's barely been troubling the top six on most weekends. But Leon Camier already this week um, said, uh, and I'll cherry pick a few quotes from this he just said the level of world superbikes is high ray has set the bar really high but he says our plan is to improve and take it to kawasaki at some point i feel the potential is there to be knocking on the podium he's saying that already and now this and, wow. I, and, I, and I get why he's saying that and, and i think he has to say that because as i've already mentioned with bmw and the same applies to honda when they're putting their full factory backing by this you know bmw is coming from the top level in germany and you know hrc as i mentioned this isn't just what we've seen in recent years with 
you know, Honda Europe offering a few quid to Tenkate. This is from the highest level. This is from Honda in Japan. So we'll have Japanese engineers, Japanese um, resource, because Morowaki are involved with this as well. You know, if you you don't put that kind of resource and that kind of effort in to turn around and finish tenth, you know, you're putting that resource no, in because you're turning up to win. Um, Absolutely. Which which is why this is such an important week for World Superbikes that we've got two manufacturers who have been. I mean, one of them has just been basically handing bikes to an independent team to go around and race with for several years, and one of them has been treading water really um, in World Superbikes talking about Honda. Um, but but now. Two of those two manufacturers are now taking it very, very seriously again, um, which is so important. Uh, AJ asks in the chat, "Hang on, World Superbikes has been dominated by a boring guy with no personality, and yet manufacturers are queuing up to fire money at bring him down." Correct. Right, exactly. Correct. Bingo. Um, Absolutely. Uh, yes. AJ, um, yeah, that's yes. that's what Jonathan Ray has created now. World Superbikes. He's created uh, almost a, this kind of invincibility that manufacturers are like, "We've got to stop this guy." We've got to bring He's him down, um, <laughs> which is almost that is now almost the uh, the, 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 the the tagline for next season. That's the, the script for next season set, isn't it? It's it's manufacturers. It's the uh, the Imperial March music of Honda and BMW turning up with money and on Ducati too, saying, "Right, our riders can't beat you, so we're just going to beat a mon- build a monster motorcycle that you can't live with." Which brings us to Ducati, um, and they've launched their new uh, V4 Panigale officially this week uh, in Milan. And it's a bit of a looker, Dre, I've got to say. Um, looking at it in the flesh, it's a beautiful Ooh. piece of kit. Um, it will test um, alongside, you know, officially it will test for the first time in Aragon um, this time next week, the 14th and 15th of November. Um, Claudio Menicali, the CEO of Ducati, was on stage to present it. Um, and this is a bike that's um, going to have the most powerful engine in Ducati history. Um, and I'm not reading this directly from the brochure. Um, but it does have 221 horsepower. Um, what? But, but, yeah, 221 horsepower um, what? on that bike. And it will have carbon wings that, of course, have been developed through several years of MotoGP um, development um, mm. in, 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 uh, in Ducati. This essentially, when you look at this bike and when you read about this bike, this is essentially a slightly watered-down MotoGP bike that's going to be racing in World Superbikes next year. 220 horsepower on a production motorcycle that you can go out on the road to the roads and buy (laughs) yeah yeah you can buy it for 25 grand okay (laughs) okay Uh, forget everything you ever knew about technology on the road that is a that is not a motorcycle that is a weapon um jesus christ and they'll have alvaro bautista and chas davies sat on them dear god we forget we have one of like the ten best bike riders on the planet going to World Superbikes to race with it in Alvaro Bautista next year on a rocket ship of a V4 Panigale. Ducati have a knack of making big-engined, brutish superbikes. Like we've seen it with the with the with the Panigale that went up to a 1300cc model with the Superleggera. Um, that again, Case Stoner was unveiling for like fifty grand, and that was basically a, a, a blunderbuss of a, of a bike. Um, yeah, uh, two hundred and twenty was, but it's, it's going to be two fifty by the time that ends up being in World Superbikes. At least yeah. that's Claudio Domenicali has described it, and I quote: "The most factory, the most powerful factory motorcycle ever built by Ducati." <laughs> Lewis, th- look, this they've built this bike specifically to win this championship. To beat Jonathan they, Ray. 
they they would not build a V4 Panigale like this under normal circumstances. Yeah, if the current Panigale was winning, they wouldn't <laughs> be doing this. They wouldn't be throwing. They wouldn't be putting MotoGP, you know, technology wings into their into their yeah into their superbike. Wings, 220 horsepower V4, normally associated with the two-stroke era in a production motorcycle. Like It's a bit like when Ford tried to go after the Group B rally title when they had the RS200 until it had that awful crash in Portugal that killed three people and then Group B rally and died as we know it right there and then. Like, it's, 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 it, it's like they've built one bike specifically to win a championship. It's ridiculous. You would never get that in the automotive industry to have a custom-built bike, you know, do that. Like, it's it's amazing. Like, we are now in a situation where Jonathan Ray is so good and Kawasaki is such a brilliant bike. I mean, they, they, they unveiled the 2019 Ninja last week. Nobody gave a shit. Mostly now because... <laughs> Three of three of his four main title rivals for next year have now unveiled stonkingly brilliant 2019 bikes to go after them. And, and Honda now HRC's full back in BMW back in World Superbikes on a full factory level with a brand new S1000 and now a V4 Panigale that that was basically built for a built as a MotoGP bike for the yeah, road. And that, and that new BMW, by the way, has got uh, the small matter of 207 horsepower. Uh, it, itself uh, and a la- brand new lighter engine as well. Like uh, AJ has already said, well, to like should totally market next season this way, as in they're coming for Johnny Ray, bring them on. Um, yes, and you're right. Jonathan and JJ continues. Johnny Ray just standing there with the trophy gesture and bring it on, fuckers. Uh, which is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it would be great. And uh, and yeah, this se- I have to say this season has ended on a bit of a flat note. Not just because the final race was rained off, but because Jonathan Ray was just beating everyone into a submission on every race that we saw. Um, but what a way to re-energize the series and to to create such excitement for next season. We already cannot wait for the 2019 World Superbike Championship to start. Um, because it's it's got so many ingredients now. Because you know Honda are going to have uh, Leon Camia staying with that bike, and of course while you're developing a new bike, and you know Honda uh, they, they trust Leon Camia's opinion and his input um, and his ability to develop a bike, so he will be on board. And they clearly trust the other riders' input because he's raced with Moraki before. He races for them in the Japanese Superbike Championship. He races for them at the A Tower. Mm. But I have to say, Trey, I could have offered you all the money I have, which given that payday is on two days' time is absolutely nil. But bear with right. me. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would have bet all I would have bet everything on us not seeing Ryuichi Kianari on the World Superbike grid in twenty nineteen, ten years on from the last time he rode in the World Superbike Championship. We've seen him of course in the British championship since then, running Shaky Burn all the way to the wire. Uh, for a championship until he broke his collarbone at Brands uh, a couple of years ago. I mean, it's it's a strange one in some respects, given how long it is since we've seen him racing at world championship level. Given the fact that Moriwaki and Honda clearly know him very well, it does make sense in that respect. Um, and I suppose if we're, you know, being charitable to Yuchi Kinari... Mm. A fully focused, fully engaged Yuji Kinari is still a world-class superbike racer, isn't he? No doubt. But the first thought in my mind was, "Huh, what year is this?" Yeah. Um, and uh, he's not racing first... BSB full time for two years. 
Yeah, it's, it's a strange move. And again, it's not a terrible move, but it's a strange one because there was a string of guys I was thinking they could have got. They got I'd, I'd like to... involved in this, and they ran Loris Bass this year. Yeah, like, Altea's just dropped BMW like a stone and have picked up Honda, just like that. It's in, in their part of this collaboration. Like, Jesus Christ, no kidding. My God. Um, yeah, um, kind of an improvement on the non-factory spec BMWs, as you do. But uh, no, this is a strange move because, as mentioned, Kianari is like, when Kianari is on it, there are very few people on the planet who can race a superbike like him. And we've seen him do freakish things on, on, on a Honda back superbike for quite some time. He knows the Fireblade very, very well. Um, and he wasn't the first name that came into my mind, but it was the 10th name that came into my mind, to be honest mm, with you. Yeah. Um, this, this is the world superbike field that still does not have Eugene Laverty, Laurie Spaz, or. Xavi Forez on full-time machinery for next year, which or is Jordi eyebrow Torres. raising on Jordi Torres. And that's baffling to me that four guys that talented don't have a seat to their name at the moment. It's uh, that's crazy. Um, and Kianari's jumped the queue like that. Um, like, it's like I said, it's a gamble. Yeah, like, it's not, it's not what it, you know, it's who you know. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, yeah, the phrase the, mercurial like, talent comes to mind. Um, mm. If ever there was a, a rider where they, that phrase was designed for, it's Ryuch Kinari. Um, but it, again, it's another layer to what already is looking like a, a fascinating, fascinating 2019 yeah. Superbike World Championship with three races per weekend, a sprint race on the Sunday, 14 rounds. The calendar's still not out for next season, but we're expecting Kyle Army to be added to it. We're expecting Jerez to be back on it. Um, yeah, can we just get to Philip Island in February already? Because I'm really looking forward to this. Um, that brings us to the end of this week's show, though. Next week, you'll notice there's no superbikes or no motorcycle racing at all this weekend, but we may well talk uh, a bit more. We may well talk a bit more World Superbikes next weekend. Um, we're likely to be bringing you a World Superbike season review, and we hope to have a very special guest with us, but we'll have more on that between now and then. Um, whatever happens, that is likely to be our show next week. Um, guest or not, we'll probably uh, look back and shoot the breeze on the 20, uh, 2018 World Superbike season. Hell, we might just uh, trick it all the window and just talk about next year's some more. Who knows? Um, oh, why not? But, but between now and then, uh, the places you can find us, uh, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101, at motorsport underscore 101 on Twitter, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101, and it's motorsport101.com for our website where you can find all of our written content. Uh, if you would like to back us on Patreon, uh, and only have early access to both our weekly shows, uh, patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101 is the place $5 backing earns you early access to our podcast $10 backing lets you listen in live on our discord server and we thank you all who have done so uh, this evening uh, next week you'll be able to listen in live to episode 169 of motorsport 101 um, which uh, we'll be looking back on the penultimate race of the Formula 1 season just as we look back on the penultimate race uh, of the MotoGP season this weekend. Dre, unfortunately, once again, you're not going to be there, but uh, King and RJ will be back to look back on uh, the Brazilian Grand Prix into Lagos. And uh, it's one of those circuits that has a pretty good success rate for delivering good races into Lagos, we have to say. Dot, 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 if it rains. Yeah, if it rains. <laughs> if or, it or, rains. or if Lewis Hamilton is set to the back of the grid for some reason. <laughs> if it rains rains it will be carnage um because nothing is nothing is quite like a wet into lagos 
Um, and like that's the thing. Like I, I look at this race like, how will Lewis Hamilton fail to win at Brazil this year? He, he yeah. loves Brazil. He wants to win at Brazil so badly every year, mostly because obviously Ayrton is his hero is and he, he still loves Brazil. Once? I think he's Once. got one Brazil win now. I think it's oh, yeah, 2015. In the wet. Yeah, in the wet in 2016. Yeah, like 2016. Yeah, thanks for correcting me there, Cam. Yeah, um, that was... So he's got, I think he's got one Brazil win to the name, but he loves... Max Verstappen's show. Yeah, dear Lord. Um, Yeah, that one. Um, But uh, no, you're quite right. It's, it's a, He loves to try and win around there, but Hamilton has a pretty sloppy track record after he wins a world title. In the hybrid era, he's not won a after becoming champion so who knows if we get 70 percent lewis it could be a more interesting time we'll have to wait and see maybe valtteri will, will, will steal pole position like he did last year who knows but uh what well, I, I i wouldn't put money on that trust me um yeah, and hey maybe going for the constructors championship as well this weekend we should say if case yeah you know, in case you want some sort of hook to make you watch it um this weekend there is a championship up for grabs this weekend it's just there the one is. You, it's just the one you don't pay attention to that much um, yeah, this exactly. weekend, um, as Mercedes going for their uh, what their fifth consecutive double um, in, in, in Formula One in five years. Uh, that's to come this weekend. Whatever happens in Interlagos, good, bad, or indifferent, uh, we'll be back next week on Motorsport One Hundred and One to review it. And we'll be back next week for episode eighty-seven of Bike Live. Um, watch this space for details on what next week's show will comprise of. Um, but uh, thanks to all of you for listening. We've gone quite long on this, way over two hours, but we hope you uh, enjoyed our look back on the Malaysian Grand Prix. No weekend. one cares. And I'll look ahead. <laughs> I will look ahead to what is already a mouth-watering um, World Superbike season for next year. We didn't even have time to tell you about Bradley Smith signing for a Moto E team, um, but hey, just just Google, <laughs> hey, just Google it. Uh, we'll be back next week to uh, to talk all things World Superbikes. But for now, thanks to all of you for listening live, and thanks to all of you that have listened in. Uh, on the download, we'll be back next week for episode 87 uh, from myself and Trey. It's goodbye. Sign out. <laughs>